Hello and welcome to episode 93 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. It's been a couple of weeks since I've had an episode, which is very frustrating to me, honestly. Um, so I apologize for that. And so we also, because of that, have a ton to cover this week. Because of that, I have had to bring in a secondary host. Uh, he's been on one episode before. We did the Batman kind of discussion one, the... Uh, Matt Reeves Batman when that came out because we really liked that so hey go watch that but anyway this is my husband Adam say hello Adam hello hello thanks for having me <laughs> your radio impersonator voice thank you okay uh, so anyway everything that's going to be on this episode uh, as I promised last time we will be starting with the Lance Reddick obituary which is a big part of why Adam is here actually because uh, a lot of what Lance Reddick did was video game stuff um, and so he'll talk about that because he is very much in that world. The tarot card of the week, it will be the lovers, which is kind of funny, um, you know, irony and all that coincidences. Um, we'll talk a lot of history actually for this one, um, cause it's going to be kind of important for next week's the devil card. Um, and also because there's really not a whole ton of interesting stuff in the card besides the history but a uh, really cool history in my opinion it goes back really far um so we'll talk a lot about that in the tarot stuff and the deck of the month even though it is <laughs> over halfway through the month now uh we will still have because i want to spotlight the tarot mucha um and we'll talk about why i like that one and my own connections to alphonse mucha and his art and all of that fun stuff in the deck of the month uh, another one that Adam's going to be helping out a lot in, he's going to be kind of taking charge of the manga of the week, which is Kaiju number eight. I've read a couple of chapters, maybe four, on the Shonen Jump app, but he has multiple volumes <laughs> that he has finished, so I think he's caught up entirely with the series, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he will lead that discussion, uh, and then there'll be a minor about of manga news um, as well, a couple of things ending and whatnot. In the comic book segment, we'll talk briefly what is new next week, because this is Wednesday and it's already kind of happened, and to be honest, I already read this week's comics. There was only a couple for me. Um, but we'll talk about what's coming out next week then, which is going to be the last week, I believe, of... Yes, the last week of... Uh, what are we in? April. Uh, there's some minor comic book news regarding some things happening in July. The solicitations for Marvel and DC are kind of late, it seems, but... Uh, we have some little things that we know that we can that's worth discussing. Um, and then I caught I caught up on a lot of comics. Um, I'm probably gonna uh, they're they're in no particular order, but things that I kind of want to touch on mostly uh, the Captain Marvel. What <laughs> it's turned out to be the final arc of that series, the last couple of issues. Uh, the new creative team on Harley Quinn, which was surprising to me. Um, we have The Ambassadors, which was Mark Millar, of course. Uh, Lovesick, I read all of and <laughs> Wow, that stuck with me. That explains my violent dreams last night. Mm. There we go. It's funny. Uh, Hellcat number one was a really good one. We'll talk a lot about that. And then, of course, my everlasting love for Purgatory. Um, as well as, oh gosh, so many other things. And the TV and movies, um, there's a lot of new animes that are coming out, so I'll list off a couple of ones that are in English dub that I am watching, um, as well as some fun shows like Beef, which Adam will take charge of because I 
could not stand uh, Stephen Yoon's character in the slightest, um, and that's my own problem, I'm sure. But uh, we have some other things we'll mention before, of course, Star Wars Celebration news, because that's also a thing that happened, and it was a lot. Uh, some really exciting stuff to talk about. Honestly, you're not going to hear me hating on anything here, <laughs> if that's what you're coming here for. Uh, don't, <laughs> because I, we're just here to uh, to enjoy Star Wars while it's around, you know? Uh, there'll be some other news and announcements, some really fun stuff, some surprising stuff. Quite a few trailers, to be honest, um, including the Penguin and the Marvel, so we got a little bit for everybody. And then uh, brief anime news, and finally, three chapters. Uh, we'll just say the wrap-up of the season finale for uh, Mando Season 3. It's three chapters that I haven't covered now, <laughs> 22 through 24. Uh, so we'll just kind of cover how the season kind of was overall, I think, at this point. Right? Is that, yeah. That sounds good. Okay. Oh, all right. And I was going to have the little segment here where I can have Adam list off his social media stuff that you can follow him, but it's kind of an odd one to list, um, so we'll just put it all in the description below. Last week, I had to delete a lot of my description that I wrote out because it was too long for certain services to have too many characters. Um, so I'll try to make my description shorter this time. <laughs> In the hopes of this being more like a celebration of life than a kind of obituary, um, I'm going to be talking over some quick credits for Lance Reddick, uh, and then Adam will talk some really nice stuff, uh, particularly involving the Destiny community, which is one of his voice acting um, roles, one of his probably, I don't know if more well-known, but probably uh, has the biggest fandom behind it that's a more prominent one. Yeah. yeah um but anyway for his credits he was a voice actor in horizon zero dawn uh which was actually super cool as well i keep forgetting that he was in that and that was like they did they did the whole obviously designed him after his character and stuff it was it was really great or the other way around his character after him <laughs> um he also did of course destiny destiny 2 the john wick series uh he was um going to voice hellboy in the upcoming hellboy web of word game actually he does voice him they did get the the recording done before he passed he was of course in the wire he was albert wesker in the live action resident evil series which i think i remember um he was apparently in oz which was a great show that was very brief he was on lost which i recall very happily it was a Mostly great series. Uh, he was on Bosch, CSI Miami, One Night in Miami, American Horror Story, Coven. Ooh, I should make you watch that someday. It's weird. Hmm. Uh, Gearman, he was the character of Gearman, I guess, in the Godzilla vs. Kong movie, and the captain in Castlevania, oh, yes. which was another really cool voice acting. This, they've had so many good. All of those roles he had was alongside really fantastic people as well. Um, John Wick, the fourth John Wick did come out on March 24th, um, and he was also slated to play Zeus in upcoming Percy Jackson series for Disney+. Plus. I'm not really sure where they would be at for that, if they had started recording that or anything, recording, filming that or anything like that. I have no idea. Um, and then he was born in Baltimore, which I misspelled wrong in my notes, uh, which notably later served as his backdrop for police lieutenant, lieutenant Cedric Daniels in The Wire. And also, very notably, 
He earned a Master of Fine Arts from Yale University in 1994, the year I was born, and I believe it was in music, and he is a musician. Was a musician. My bad. Um, Adam, would you like to take over? Yes. Um, so my first introduction to him, you know, believe it or not, was not Destiny. It was The Wire. Mm-hmm. Um, that is where a lot of people got their start. That's where young Michael B. Jordan got his start. Mm-hmm. So many others. Um he was fantastic as Cedric Daniels, the hard-ass detective who rolled up and was like, I'm going to crack things down and change this town. Um, but more notably, it was Destiny uh, for me. He was he was the voice of Commander Zavala, um, the Titan Vanguard. Um, he's been, he was, he's literally been there since D1. Like, so many people know him. Like, if you look up anything of the Destiny community of Zavala, you'll see that copy pasta meme that he says of whether we wanted it or not, we stepped into the war with the Cabal. Um, looked it up. It's a nice little read. Um, but there was one thing that was always great about him was, um, no matter what role he played in, he gave it his all. Like he never, you know, rolled up and kind of half-assed anything. Um, I, one of my favorite things was, uh, he did a lot of really good funny or die skits, uh, whenever they were a big YouTube page. Absolutely hilarious. He, you know, it was, he gives it his all, literally a guy that is a true thespian. Um, and then he also did a fantastic skit on, uh, the Eric Andre show, that he wrote himself, like all wrote himself. <laughs> and it was about him as a voice actor, um, trying to chase after somebody as great as LeVar Burton, one of the greatest <laughs> voice actors of all time. Yes. <laughs> so it's hilarious to see him like act that out. He even did on the full, put on like the full on sidetrack, um, Star Trek yeah. goggles and was acting him out. It's great. I highly recommend that. Um, and he, he was even like, he got so into the thing. He even scared Eric Andre, which is really hard to do. Cause that guy is completely <laughs> off the wall. Um, but one of my favorite things was uh, there was this poem that uh, the community was written way before he passed away that really sums up Zavala and a lot of the things that he stood for in the game. And I personally feel like he probably stood up for in, um, in real life as well. Um, Eyes up, guardians. Praise the sun in memory of those whose light has been extinguished. Remember the light they brought into this world. Remember how it made yours brighter. The battle with the darkness is not only inside our walls, but inside ourselves. In this time of great loss and even greater darkness, remember that even the strongest of guardians can fall. Not a failure, but, not a failure, but merely the doom of life that we all carry over us. At all times, the edge between light and darkness. Eyes up, guardians, for our friends and fellow warriors, for those whose light, for those whose, whom the light was cut short, for the protectors, for those who stood at your side, for those who are the brightest of us all. Eyes up, guardians. Um, I think that is. It's amazing. Uh, it, I feel I feel like that really sums up his character and a lot of what he stood for himself. Uh, there was even so many times of people eventually found his gamer tag, and you know, <laughs> through him just hanging out on the tower or in, like in the EDZ or something, he people would be like, "Hey, are you commanders of all?" And he'd be like, "Yeah." And he'd actually run with people. Uh, that was my favorite thing too. Um, one of the things that wrecked me is that um, the day before he passed, somebody saw that he was logged in playing the game. Um, and actually was doing the new Lightfall campaign mission. Um, so yeah, so rest in peace, uh, Lance Riddick, and thank you for everything. Yes, and I know his wife had a nice uh, note to the Destiny yes. community yes. as well, because she acknowledged they were oh, yeah. always really great fans towards him, and they were a great community that he loved to be a part of. Yeah, and there was one thing I completely forgot, too. Uh, the, the day the news got out, everybody in the tower oh, uh, went over to his character in-game and was doing little memorials throughout the whole entire day. No matter who it was, you saw like uh, people and their characters around him doing nice memorials. Um, so it really shows how strong this community is and how much they liked him and supported him. Yep, yep. That is a talent that will be genuinely missed. The range was remarkable. I know yes. people talk about great actresses and great actors and 
stuff like that. And they you think about it, and a lot of them are actually extremely pigeonholed, and I can't imagine them doing a comedic role or a really serious role or something like that. But you know, Lance Reddick was not one of those. He, I felt, I feel like definitely could have handled whatever whatever kind of role he felt like. That was he he definitely has the range. He he did. Moving on to Tara this week, our card, as I said earlier, ironically, is The Lovers. Um, a lot of this card is, frankly, quite generic, uh, the symbolism and such, which is why we're going to dive a lot into the history. Um, the We'll start the keywords for um, sort of the, uh, what do you say, interpretation of this card, I guess, or love, harmony, relationships, values, alignment, and choices. The reverse of the card obviously being self-love, disharmony, imbalance, and misalignment of values. That's a squeaky truck. Um, uh, what's his name? Wait, who is, of course is the one of the designers of the Rider Waite Smith tarot, of which we all know in this day and age. Not all know, you know. Most of the Western society uses uh, for divination. Very generic. He says it's attraction, love, beauty, trials overcome, and the reverse is failure and foolish designs. I think, honestly, the most generic things you could have thought of in coming in when coming up with uh, things for something to mean. Uh, but the history, the history is where it can become interesting. Uh, and I found all of this on a site that is, uh, understandably, tarot-heritage.com, and I have the link for this particular page here. Um, and we're starting here because context is really cool, and this is a journey that goes from Italy to France to the U.S. and spans about 600 years. The earliest known lovers' cars were based on historic Italian weddings. There's your Italy first. Uh, these first were being these were first made from 1441. Visually, they are very different from what we now know as the tarot cards for the lovers. They were two figures in front of a wedding canopy with a little white dog at their feet. The heraldry of the heraldry of both families, their insignias and whatnot, appears on their clothing. The words abon. Drot uh, is nearly invisible on the groom's hat. I'm sure it means something. Um, and is he is a Viconti, it is a Viconti motto that he adopted. The little white dog symbolizes marital fidelity, and the word amor, which of course means love in gold, is nearly invisible on the canopy there above them. Perhaps uh, the writer of the website had this very interesting take on it that I would definitely agree with. Perhaps to compensate for the grim reality of their arranged marriages, aristocrats were mad for stories of Lancelot and Guinevere, the Roman de la Rose, and the songs of the French troubadours. Ar aristocratic art of the era, including custom-made triophony cards like this, bathed courtship and marriage in an idealistic and romantic glow. The hands of the figures on the cards were also clasped in most of these lovers' cards, because in our culture, the exchange of rings is the high point of a marriage ceremony, while in their day it was the hand clasp or hand fasting. Uh, the aforementioned card, actually, that I was just describing is actually based off of a real historic wedding where an eight-year-old girl was marrying a uh, middle-aged vicomte. Uh, the artist of the original was Bonificio Bembo, and Bianca, the child bride, reportedly described the details of the wedding to the artist. So the image is technically historically accurate, 
even though she is not depicted as eight years old. The next style of the lover's cards, and in the next era, woodblock art, depicts the couple with one or two Cupid angels. Another quote from the website. While aristocrats were commissioning luxurious cards from their court artists to show off their wealth, printers were turning out inexpensive woodblock decks for all classes of people who just wanted to play a game of Triofini with cheap cards, which is one of the old card games for tarot. Ordinary people had more freedom than aristocrats to respond to Cupid's arrow and marry for love. The love card in these mass-produced decks from the 15th through mid-17th centuries depict a courtship scene where the woman succumbs to Cupid's arrows. Only one love card comes down to us from the French transition. There's France, uh, period. Oh, actually get more into France later even. Uh, before the deck settled into the Tarot de Marseille pattern. The Paris, the Tarot de Paris lover card shows a rather frisky, mature couple with Cupid's goading Cupid goading the man along. In the Tarot de Paris and later Tarot de Marseille style, the man is the Cupid's target. And they have a note on the Italian name um, for the card love at the time, I believe is what, um, not the lovers, it was... We have many Italian essay sonnets and lists of card names from that time. All the evidence indicates this card's Italian name was singular, l'amour, which was just love. It uh, refers to the abstract concept, not the people involved. So courtly love is the only possible interpretation of this version of the card. So yeah, the, the, the Italian version was just love, not the lovers. More abstract is definitely correct there. Now, the Tarot de Marseille lover card was a man pulled at between two women with a cupid above him. One of the women was much older and more homely, while the other was younger and more traditionally beautiful. Was it a bride and his mother-in-law, his wife and his mistress, his mother and his fiance, girlfriend and chaperone are the two women fighting over the man? Is the man trapped between saying an arranged marriage or following his heart? Should he play it safe and take the conventional and responsible path, or follow his heart, abandon his family, and take the risky option? This is the choice we face many times in life. Stay in our comfort zone, or risk going forward into the unknown. Even some cards have it as a king urging a knight to serve his duty to the kingdom, rather than go home to his wife. This fits with the trump sequence, since the next card is the chariot, showing the lover as military hero triumphing over love. So then we have a brief art history segue talking about the tarot threesome. Don't be dirty. It's the man pulled out between the two women. Okay, gosh. Uh, the tarot threesome may have been inspired by the story of the youthful Hercules being lured by women who embody two radically different paths of life, vice and virtue. Hercules' choice was a very popular theme that inspired artists and playwrights at the time tarot cards were evolving into the Terra de Marseille pattern. J.S. Bach wrote a cantana based on the story. The philosopher Montaigne, Montaigne, I think that's how I say that, pondered how one could reconcile the past and led a virtuous life of duty, yet still have some fun. A lead. Eh, that makes sense. This painting by Annabelle Carecci, Hercules at a Crossroads, the historical painting, is considered the quintessential rendering of the theme in European art. Hercules sits between two women vying for his attention. One woman, Aphrodite, is voluptuous, scantily draped, and accompanied by musical instruments, theater masks, and playing cards. She tries to lure Hercules into the dark forest by offering an easy life devoted to indulging his senses. Virtue, Minerva, who is also Diana, is modesty dressed... Actually, no, it's not Diana. 
Uh, give me a second. Is modestly dressed and points to a steep, rocky path where Pegasus, friend of the muses, waits at the top. The steep path of duty and service is not easy, but holds out the promise of fame and glory. A painting of the same scene by Veronese, Veronese shows a well-dressed Hercules being mauled by virtue and vice. Just as in the Tarot de Marseillais, vice wears a circlet of flower, while virtue wears a spiky laurel crown. Card readers interpret the Tarot de Marseille lover in two ways. It still represents love in all its manifestations, but the card could also mean a crossroads in life, having to choose between competing values or lifestyles, then making a commitment. It could also mean being indecisive, hesitant, and doubting your ability to choose wisely. Some authors read the story a bit differently and see the middle figure as an unfaithful lover. Cupid's arrow suggests the lovers, like Romeo and Juliet, are victims of fate. Now we're back to France in history, okay? French occult tarot in the late 1800s. So influential 19th century French occultist. Now this guy is really interesting. Elphus, Eliphas Levi, which we were just talking about him because we were talking about Baphomet. Mm. I should do a, a section on Baphomet and how that's and how Eliphas Levi really solidified that as a concept that's not what it actually is. But anyway, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, so this dude, who was kind of crazy, but great artist, uh, French occultist Eliphas Levi, Papus and Oswald Wirth explicitly state that this card depicts a man de deciding between the paths of vice and virtue. Cupid aims his arrow rather forcefully at the top of the man's head, demonstrating the force of will that he'll have at his disposal once he commits to a path. By the middle of the 20th century, the major arcana sequence was sometimes seen as a through a Jungian, like Carl Jung, Jungian lens as the fool's journey towards individuation. The Tarot de Marseille lover card, coming immediately after cards rep representing parents, church, and society, depicts a young person at the stage of their journey where they break away from home, take risks, and acquire their own values. He's an adolescent feeling pulled between wanting to stay home and be taken care of by mother, or following his heart and moving forward into independent adulthood. So now the story takes us to England in the 1880s and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, who we all know were a little bit wrong about a lot of stuff, frankly, but um, <laughs> what they have to say is the card illustrates the myth of Perseus rescuing Andromeda, their version of the card, from the sea monster. According to the Golden Dawn, she's chained to the rock of materialism. As the Greeks tell it, Perseus made a stopover on the North African coast on his way home from beheading Medusa. Andromeda had been chained to a rock by her father and left to be devoured by a sea monster to placate Neptune, who was extremely annoyed with the royal family. Perseus fell in love with Andromeda while rescuing her. The couple married, lived happily ever after, had many children, and became the ancestors of the Mycenaean royal dynasty, as well as Hercules' ancestor, which circles us back to the Tarot de Marseillais. The, Im the image vaguely relates to the Golden Dawn's divinatory meaning of motivation and action arising from inspiration, if you see Perseus as being inspired by love, at least.
This is noteworthy because thanks to the Golden Dawn, this card experienced a name and shift from English from the lover, which is what it had gone from originally love to the lover, and now, thanks to them, mostly uh, the lovers, plural. That leaves us with the Rider Waite Smith Lovers card in the USA, which was made in 1909. It has vastly different from Fevery's versions, and that brings us to what we will be looking at today. So, as I just said, the Rider Waite Smith tarot differs drastically from the historic lover's tarot card, or love, or lover as it was previously. Uh, the angel, this card, basically to give a brief description, has a nude man and woman from behind. On the woman's side is a apple tree with a snake on it. On the other side is a flaming tree. There is an angel up in the sky, a mountain in the distance, um, and it's nighttime. Okay, cool. The angel is unidentified. It is in the official text by uh, Mr. Waite, I believe it was. Great winged figure powering... Oh, sorry, pouring down influences. These basically, this card is basically telling the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The serpent on the tree of knowledge, the flaming tree is the tree of life. They are in a state of purity before eating the apples, signifying spiritualized love before and without material desires. Adam looks at Eve, Eve looks at the angel. This is symbolic of Adam being the conscious, rational mind. Eve is the bridge to the superconscious realm. Uh, their vision path is meant to show the path from physical desire, the man, to emotional needs, the woman, to spiritual concerns, the angel. Uh, the flames of the tree also signify passion and the pursuit of destiny. Desire may distract from the divine is uh, kind of a way to take the flames in the tree and everything. The mountain behind them, or in front of them, is phallic and represents eruption of passion. Sex. Uh, the angel reminds them of their union with the divine. The serpent and the apple represent the temptation that blocks the divine. Um, which kind of led me to the question of, if sex is temptation and blocks the divine, why can't sex be one with the divine? I think we're getting into a whole other religion at that question. Uh, and traditionally, there are 12 flames on the flaming tree, representing the zodiac signs, the months, or the hours in, you know, a day or night. Um, the question of... Uh, desire may distract from the divine really comes into question for me when the whole thing about how their vision, he looks to her, she looks to the angel, it goes from physical desire, physical desire, physical needs to emotional needs to spiritual needs. Doesn't that mean that sex can be involved in spiritual health? But then there, that's the whole thing is supposed to be the opposite. I'm not sure. That's why I feel like um, the the, <laughs> the great change that the Rider Waite Smith tarot took in this card was a little bit in question. Obviously, they were taking a lot just from religion, and that's never always. That's not always good. <laughs> but anyway, we can move on now to interpretation. And after interpretation will be pop culture, which we have some actually really fun stuff and some very well thought out lines uh, from the article that I uh, will be linking down there in the description. So after doing a little bit of digging through various uh, sources, this is the most relevant I could find of the lover's card interpretation or meaning. 
The arrival of this card in a tarot reading shows that you have a beautiful soul-honoring connection with a loved one. You may believe you have found your soulmate or life partner, and the sexual energy between you both goes way beyond instant gratification and lust to something that is very spiritual and almost tantric. While the lover's card typically refers to romantic ties, it can also represent a close friendship or family relationship where love, respect, and compassion flow. On a more personal level, the lover's card represents getting close, getting clear about your values and beliefs. You are figuring out what you stand for and your philosophy. Having gone through the indoctrination of the Hierophant, you are now ready to establish your belief system and decide what is and what is not essential to you. It's time to go into the wide the big wide world and make choices for yourself, staying true to who you are and being authentic and genuine in all your endeavors. At its heart, the lovers is about choice. The choice about who you want to be in this lifetime, how you connect with others and on what level, and about what you will and won't stand for. To make good choices, you need to be clear about your personal beliefs and values and stay true to them. Not all decisions will be easy either. The lover's card is often a sign that you are facing a moral dilemma and must consider all consequences before acting. Your value system is being challenged and you are being called to take the higher path even if it is difficult. Do not carry out a decision based on fear or worry or guilt or shame. Now more than ever you must choose love. Love for yourself, love for others, and love for the universe. Choose the best version of yourself. Finally, the lover's card encourage you, encourages you to unify dual forces. You can bring together two parts that are seemingly in opposition to one another and create something that is whole, unified, and harmonious. harmonious. <laughs> in every choice, there is an equal amount of advantage and disadvantage, opportunity and challenge, positive and negative. When you accept these dualities, you build the unity from which love flows. And pop culture! Um, there's some really fun things here. First off, the 1973 film Live and Let Die. There was a character named Solitaire who repeatedly finds the lover's card in a deck designed, I guess, fun fact, by Fergus Hall, uh, and interprets it that she is destined to be in love with James Bond. It's obviously not <laughs> based on literally everything we just went over. That's not what really how to interpret the card. Uh, in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, hey Adam, maybe you know about this. You watch that. Uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Stardust Crusaders, uses tarot cards to name... Huh? The best one. Really? Okay. To name the characters' stands. One of the stands' name is Steely Dan's The Lovers. Oh, you told me about yeah, the classic the, rock yes, references. Okay. Yes, yeah. Which is named after, of course, The Lovers card. But um bump mm -hmm. So, uh, we'll have Marvel Tarot and Anime Tarot next. So, Marvel Tarot, of course... Oh, shoot. I clicked on the wrong thing. Marvel Tarot is somewhat predictably, I don't know, Cloak and Dagger. And once again, the Marvel Tarot is a 2007 comic issue that they printed that was like a faux journal of some magical guy in the Marvel Universe who was drawing tarot cards and just like putting together notes about what everything that he's doing is. Okay, right, gotcha. What he says about the lover is being cloak and dagger. The characters, not the metaphor or whatever. 
I don't believe that the dagger, sorry, I don't believe that the hero's cloak and dagger are romantically connected to each other. I'm pretty sure they are. But the lover's card is about more than just the obvious physical manifestation of love. These two are bound together in deeper and more meaningful ways. I am confused a little because I understood that the two were mutants whose mutant abilities were triggered by exposure to an experimental drug. The deck is not usually interested in non-magical subjects. There could be a mystical side to this duo. The Scarlet Witch is a mutant who bridges the gap between science and sorcery. Maybe they do as well. And then for the anime tarot, which is, once again, one of the best tarot teaching tools I have ever come across. It's by Natasha, Natasha Iglesias, and I will be going through every week with uh, this one, just as I am with the Marvel Tarot, because it's freaking fantastic. Uh, the anime tarot says, card number six, the archetype that it goes for is the high school crushes. And what she says about that, the lover's analog in anime is best expressed by, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Japanese version. We know how that goes always. I embarrass myself. So we're going to say just the English version, which is high school crushes. The young lovers are still discovering themselves and each other. This journey to self-discovery aligns them with each other as they learn to be vulnerable and to communicate. Only once each person has identified their true values and desires are they finally able to come together in harmony to create a whole that's more than the sum of its parts. Uh, we have from... My little ones. I haven't seen any of these. Wow. We uh, The ones that they're talking about are the romances in My Love Story, Maid Sama, My Little Monster, Kimi Nitidoke, Blue Spring Ride, and Say I Love You. I haven't seen any of those. I feel embarrassed. I need to get on that, apparently. So the last bit of pop culture then that, that leaves us with is The Little Prince, which is our conclusion uh, to this uh, lover's card discussion. And this is also going to be entirely quoted. I have to give credit to, uh, that tarotheritage.com writer again. This was a fantastic article I found, and this one, uh, in particular, I feel like you could quote and put on cards to hand out to people as motivational stuff. But anyway... Using the little prince's devotion to his rose as an example, the author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, Exupéry, I don't, I apologize, teaches a lesson in genuine love. The rose is vain, demanding, and not entirely honest, a stand-in for the author's high-maintenance wife. But the little prince, on his tiny volcanic planet, devotes himself to the happiness and comfort of his rose, putting her under glass every night to keep her warm, watering her every day, and listening patiently as she alternately complains and boasts. His dedication to her safety and happiness makes the rose special to him, and is a testament to his love for her. The little prince may have the key to the card's essential meaning. This card encompasses romantic love and all its illusions, the temptation to stray, the willingness to make a lifelong commitment, as well as the desire to risk everything for, you, everything for something better when the chosen life path starts to feel boring and confining. It also implies the choices a young person must take, make. Education, a career path, a life partner, whether to break from your family's values, and how high a price you are willing to pay if you do. 
Like the little prince tending to his rose, your commitments define you. With your values as a guide, you weigh your options, then commit with all your heart and soul to a special person, a life path, or a project. Then begins the hard work of tending this commitment daily. Choice, love, struggle, and commitment are all implicit with this card, and I would add as well in life. That wraps up the uh, card of the week. We will talk about the lover's connections to the devil card when we get to the devil card, because I feel like we've talked about this enough right now. The deck of the month uh, is the Tarot Mucha. Um, this is kind of a funky one because it is from Los Garibo, Scarabeo, something like that, uh, who, yes, technically is a Llewellyn company, and we don't really like Llewellyn because a lot of Llewellyn doesn't like a lot of us. We'll just say. Um, I really don't know the political connections about any of this, so if you do, you can educate me. But in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and appreciate this. Uh, the thing that's weird about the Los Garabio um, tarot decks, which is what that noise is, um, is you don't really get... Like with the Natasha Iglesias anime tarot that I have, and honestly a lot of other tarot decks that I have. Um, Liminal Eleven is a great company, they make great tarot decks. All of those tarot decks, you get to feel of the author, very, and the writer, and the one who designed the deck really, really uh, firmly. You get to know them. Los Garebeo, uh, you don't. It feels very corporate, somehow. <laughs> but they still make fantastic products. Uh, the text of the Tarot Mucha, which I have here, is by Lunea Weatherstone. The artwork is by Giulia Massaglia. Ugh, sorry. And the colors by Barbara Nocenzo. As comic fans, we know the colorists are important to note. Um, it is, quote, an extraordinary tribute to the art of Alphonse Mucha and the tarot masters of the past. Um, also, I would also note the guidebook. I don't know if this is Ms. Weatherstone's uh, decision or what, but the guidebook has some of the best example readings of spreads and how to do it that I've ever come across. Really fantastic. Um, I would argue, great teaching tool again, alongside the anime tarot's just existence. <laughs> um, the reason that I have a connection with this one is because Alphonse Mucha uh, was a Czech painter, illustrator, and graphic artist in the year... I want to say it was 1912. My great-grandmother uh, came from what was the warring Slovak, Czechoslovakia kind of situation to the U.S. through Ellis Island with her 14-month-old baby sister strapped to her chest, who was also my namesake, fun fact. It was not too much longer later that she actually married um, the, into the Yeno family, was what I would be pronounced, Jeno. Um, having a bit of a moment with this, actually, because today is the day of his burial at Arlington in Washington, D.C. haven't seen very many pictures from the family yet who were able to make it there, but um, that will be very interesting. But he was, of course, very much um, in connection with his Slovak uh, kind of history, um, and we have a little bit of family still in Slovakia now, uh, I occasionally reach out, they would always call him on Christmas and his birthday and stuff, and sing to happy birthday in Slovak, and, because he's of course first generation, he was first generation American, so, 
Uh, but anyway, and, and he died in 2020, unrelated to COVID, <laughs> thank God. Um, but so there's, it's just now is the first chance that anybody's gotten to make this stuff happen again after the world has paused. But anyway, so that's my kind of connection <laughs> uh, in our family, extended family. You know, my I have 26 cousins. My mom is one of 11. So when I say in my extended family, it's it's a big deal. We all really much, very much love uh, Alphonse Mucha art because we are all very proud of our uh, Slovak heritage and the family who came here from there. So emotional interlude aside, let's talk about Mucha a little bit. He was born Alphonse Maria Mucha. I'm sure that you don't roll your R when you're talking about Slovak names. Um, my bad. He was born July 24th, 1860, and died the 14th of July, 1939. Damn, that thing about you die within 30 days of your birthday is so uncanny. Anyway, um, (laughs) he was a, as I said, Czech painter, illustrator, and graphic artist, living in Paris at the time of the Art Nouveau period. Very famous art styles. Best known for his distinctly stylized and decorative theatrical posters, particularly those of Sarah Bernhardt. He produced illustrations, advertisements, decorative panels, as well as designs, which became amongst the best known images of the period. In the second part of his his career, at the age of 57, he returned to his homeland and devoted himself to a series of 20 monumental canvases known as the Slav Epic, depicting the history of all the Slavs peoples of the world, which he painted between 1912 and 1926. In 1928, on the 10th anniversary of the independence of Czechoslovakia, he presented the series to the Czech nation. He considered it his most important work, which I think is actually really important to consider because not a lot of people are even aware that that exists, just the general Mucha fans, I think. Uh, who come across his art style, we need to come across his art style, you come across his Art Nouveau style, I think it's the more known stuff. Um, but if this is most his most, if he believed that this was his most important work, I feel like that should be given its due credit in his story as well. The exhibition was held at the Trade Fair Palace in Prague in the autumn of 1928, coinciding with the 10th anniversary of Czechoslovakia. Muchislav Epic depicted the empire of Slavic sorry, the development of Slavic civilization from its origin in ancient times through the Middle Ages and the religious reformation to the aftermath of the First World War, which brought about independence of Slavic nations from the Habsburg Empire. There are several broad themes embracing Wuch's canvases, the Slavs as faithful and peace-loving people who contributed towards artistic and cultural development in Europe, the horrors and tragedy of war brought about by disunity among the Slavic peoples, the rights of the humanity to live and prosper in society free from oppression and subjugation with mutual respect and for differences in religious, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds. All of which are values that we still should be holding to today. Uh, And then I'll have a link in my notes from the uh, arts and culture site on Google about Alphonse Mucha's uh, Slav painting series. Manga of the week, as promised, Adam is going to be doing leading this discussion, but I will just announce because I am a control freak. It's Kaiser number eight. Yeah, oh, my turn. <laughs> um, so yeah, Kaiju number eight is uh, is very interesting. It's not your traditional uh, Shonen Jump manga. 
Um, it's not based around a bunch of like young kids or like high schoolers. Teenagers, yeah. Yeah. It's about a dude who's literally 31 years old and kind of feels like he's burnt out and hasn't lived out to his full potential, which I feel like as a 31 year old myself, like <laughs> that, 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 that really, you know, very, especially a lot of millennials now, you know, the way things are, you very much relate to that. Um, so the gist of it is, is that his, the main character is Kafka Habino. Um, so his job is essentially is he cleans up kaiju shit and dead guts. Um, uh, cause in this world, uh, kaijus invade. It's along the lines, very similar to, um, uh, what is it? Pacific Rim. Oh yeah. About yeah. how like kaijus keep showing up, but they don't have the big mecha armor. Great movie. I know it's got haters, yes. but it's still a ton of fun. You yes. can't lie. Um, so Kafka, <laughs> Kafka, he, you know, he, he's cleaning up the kaiju, you know, disposal team. Um, but as a kid, his best friend, Mina Ashiro, uh, they made this pact together after both losing their parents to uh, a kaiju attack. They, they would uh, be the leaders of the defense force and kill every kaiju alive and make everybody safe. So fast forward years later, um, Mina is now the head, the head captain of all the, the, the defense force, and he's just the guy who cleans up the mess. Um, so one day something happens, and he gets this young kid in his group named um, Leno Ichikawa. Um, he's this 19 year old kid who's like, what do you mean? You don't feel like you've lived at your full potential old man. You have plenty of life left to go out and do it. Um, so it's really funny that kind of young kid gives him that boost of like, nah, man, you're still young. You can do this. Um, and they both kind of work together and eventually he ends up becoming, you know, part of the team, but somehow, some way it still hasn't been explained. I think it's yeah, six volumes in, um, this random kaiju, very tiny kaiju. Uh, the thing I love about this is that kaiju doesn't necessarily mean giant monster. It just means like foreign creature. <laughs> um, so this tiny kaiju like flies inside of Kafka and like I somehow like bonds with him. So now that he can turn into a kaiju at any point in time. Um, so basically, the, the, I know I said this is like Pacific Rim, but they don't have the big giants, you know, giant suits. And you're probably wondering how the hell the hell do they fight these guys. Um, the best way I can describe it is, you know, as a Destiny player, they use sword logic. <laughs> so what this means is you beat your enemy and then you get them and you turn them into a weapon. So that's what they do in this. So anytime they defeat a kaiju, they get that kaiju's body, bones, or whatever it is, and they make armor or guns into it and give it to these people. Um, and it actually links to them neurologically. So they have to like mentally tap into these like parts of the kaiju to get powerful strength. And the more percentage they can tap into, the stronger they get, but the more, you know, it messes with their brain. So it's a really cool concept, and it's also like you're putting these humans on a level playing field with the kaijus, but there's also still some sort of like you have to have some drawback. You can't be like, oh, yeah, I'm this regular guy, but I can fight a giant kaiju. You have to have some catch-22 to it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really cool. Um, probably my favorite character is the vice captain. Um, his name is Shoshiro Hoshina. Uh, he's just, like, this very, like, smiley, like, Japanese dude, but then will, like, <laughs> cut it on at a point in time to, like, be the badass motherfucker to come save the day. Um, but, yeah, oh, it's actually getting made into an anime. I believe it's coming out next year. Um, they're definitely pumping it up, um, and for what I can say, for somebody who is a little bit older, who does kind of get tired of, you know, it just being centered around, like, young teenage kids. Like, I love Jujutsu Kaisen, but it's like, alright, this is still, like, mm -hmm. high schoolers, I can only relate to it so much. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's my thoughts on uh, Kaijin and Bright. Highly recommend it. Um, it's, it's on the Shonen Jump app, and volumes 1 through 6 are currently out now everywhere. Um, it actually just found... Just found uh, volume six today. Um, uh, you can pronounce it. Yeah. 
the 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 creator of this is Nioma Mashimoto. Um, I've heard of Mashimoto before of him making a lot of good manga, and so very quality. The manga, the Shonen Jump, you can find it on the Shonen Jump app is the easiest way. But then this is just the chapters. If you want the volumes, you can buy them from Viz. Oh, I mean from anywhere, but they're published by Viz. Yeah, but like just uh, flipping to a random page in this, like it's it's very cool art. Um, and it's mm-hmm. the best way I could describe it is you know you have the traditional manga art, but this kind of makes me think of if I don't know if this may be like a weird take, but like especially this page right here. Makes me think of like Daniel Warren Johnson was the full on yeah, yeah. manga artist, and if he was, yes. you know, because it has what do, you, what do you say, kinetic, that very kinetic art mm-hmm. of like moving around, but then it's very still page, but you can still tell that Ooh. it's very much like fluent motion going on in the panel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Um, I've only read a couple of chapters, but uh, it wasn't even with having Adam had told me about it a lot. It was not what I expected the first few chapters to be. Yes. Um, but it wasn't, but that was not at all a disappointing thing. It was more of a thing like, Oh, I'm glad I'm not seeing exactly what I expected. Something a little bit more creative than that, I guess. Um, yeah, I I think it's, I I haven't gotten very far, but I think it'll be really fun to kind of get down the line and see how things evolve from where I just got to. For manga news this week, there's a couple of fun things to talk about that I am vaguely familiar with. Uh, The first one is that there are 28 new titles. I feel like I'm leaning in the wrong direction for the microphone. 28 new titles uh, that Yes Press is... uh, Is it Yes? Oh, Yen Press. Yeah, I totally typed that wrong. Yen Press is licensing uh, from their chapter versions from whatever sites they come from originally and magazines. Uh, and that's really cool. So if there's a lot of those that you want to check out, I have a link here because they're not going to list out 28 titles. I'm not silly. I am silly. Um, there are two new mangas that came out for me this month in April. That was My Sister the Cat Volume 2, mm. Painfully Cute, Cannot Recommend Enough, uh, and My Dress Up Darling Volume 8, which I haven't actually read yet because <laughs> you should see the list <laughs> the list of mangas that I'm reading digitally right now. Um, it's it's more than a page, <laughs> but I've shortened it down and now I'm gonna try and stick to the ones that I can catch up on in a reasonable amount of time. And we'll talk about those uh, maybe next week. We'll we'll talk about what I've been reading a lot recently. Um, but I've been trying to re- read like equal amount of manga and comics. And yes, I did catch up, my con- up on the comics that I've been so behind on, so I can actually say that now. Anyway, back to news. Uh, Bloodsucking Darkness is being made into a live-action film. It is by writer-artist Junji. Uh, he's the original manga creator, and he's also going to be a producer of this live-action film. Vangoria Studios is producing, and the... <laughs> 21 that's the netflix resident evil right the resident evil 2021 series that was netflix right am i wrong uh and also this he did the haunting of hill house he was the supervising producer jeff howard he will be doing the screenplay which i feel like is a little bit important to uh kind of have an idea of who that'll be uh, as for what Bloodsucking Darkness is, it is one of Junji Ito's many one-shot manga short stories. It centers on a girl named Nami who is obsessed with dieting. 
Um, and she's so obsessed that she finds herself eventually vomiting blood. She dreams about a world that rains blood and has found herself waking up with blood all around her. She meets a boy named Kazuya who expresses worry about her dieting and tries to get closer to her. The story is available in Viz Media's smashed Junji Ito story collection book. I, uh, if that ends up being a really good horror movie, you bet your butt I'll watch it. I like horror movies. Uh, we're getting Love Life Superstar spinoff about Chisato, uh, Chisato, um, manga creator Yuta Taneda launched the story on Kodakawa March 30th. This title is Love Life Superstar Club President Chishan is Versatile. I love the titles. <laughs> I love manga titles translated into English. They're so fun. <laughs> It centers, of course, on Chisato Arashi teaching the members of Layla how to sing, dance, and do various other skills for the school's idol group. Eventual goal of becoming winners of Love Live, which, of course, is a whole whole universe that they have now, and it's actually kind of fun. Uh, and then finally, Tadecha Nakama's Tokyo Bride ended. We talked about that last week. I haven't finished it yet, but... I do owe it a finale talk about when I finally do read the ending. Other things that are ending soon, Girlfriend Girlfriend by Hiroyuki, Hiroyuki, I'm sorry, ends in four chapters. When I say I'm sorry, I'm apologizing to the person whose name it is, because I'm terrible at pronunciation. Uh, 365 Days to the Wedding by Tamaki Wakaki ends with volume 11. And it's also getting uh, an anime as well as a live action edition. So that'll be interesting. I'm not a big live action watcher, but I think it's interesting that it's catching back on so much right now. Finally, the ninth wave manga by Michiteru Kusaba ends in two chapters. And now that brings us to the comic book segment. Um, this would normally be new this week, but since it's already Wednesday when we're starting to record this, we're going to talk new next week, the 26th of April, which is also going to be the last week of the month. And with any luck on the subsequent podcast episode, um, <laughs> I'll be able to talk a little bit about what's coming in May, including Free Comic Book Day, because that's a big deal. It's a big support the industry moment, and we want to make sure we're prepared to do so. Anyway, so instead of talking new this week, which was already kind of happened, we're talking new next week on the 26th. Uh, and some of these things I have read but haven't talked about yet because I have only recently caught up on them and I'm going to talk about them in the uh, comics catch-up section including the Mark Millar Ambassadors series which I have been really enjoying. You know, um, I'll, uh, sometimes you'll find that you'll go to a series because it's a, uh, oh gosh, Brian Michael Bendis had one recently that I was like, oh, it was called The Ones? I was like, oh, Brian Michael Bendis indie series? That's gonna be awesome. Solicitation sounded solid. Did not like it in the slightest. <laughs> uh, wildly disappointing. Oh gosh, so incredibly disappointing. But this was one that was really nice to see that uh, Mark Millar, you know, kept up with his reputation as being an excellent alternate superhero kind of world writer. Um, and no, this is not a copy of anything that he's done for his... I know he does... It's, um... 
whatever it's called. It's one of the Netflix things. That's why he's like, his name and Netflix are like synonymous now because he sold his soul to them, apparently, or vice versa. I'm not really sure. But The Ambassadors has been what you would hope to get from a Mark Millar series. And I know it's something to be cheesy, but it's true. The first issue um, was Frank Quietly. I'm getting too far into this. Second was Carl Kershaw. Third issue that will be coming this week is the one we're talking about now. Travis Cherist. And we're going to be needing a new ambassador from Paris. Black Sheik number one comes from Lev Gleason's publishing New Friday. Um, it is some kind of samurai story, which, you know, we can maybe see how Lev Gleason's take on that is. Bram Stoker Monster Hunter is coming from Aftershock. We are talking Adam Glass Ryder and Olivia Cuatiro. Oh dear, definitely not how you say that. Briggs. Um, I'm always in for a fun Bram Stoker kind of Mary Shelley take on something. Dark Stalkers, I am not at all familiar with, but I have been caught, my eye has been caught by Dark Stalkers Felicia number one. Writer is Tim Seeley, who is pretty well known, I think. Uh, and we have some very fun variant covers. Ariel Diaz is doing one. Um, I don't know how to pronounce this, but Reich, R-E-I-Q. The style is very much um, like Rose Besh, actually. Uh, we have, of course, uh, Rian Gonzalez is doing one. Her style is also fantastic. Um, as well as Ice Miro, who is an artist that I am only starting to become familiar with. Uh, but yeah, a lot of really cool variants with Darkstalkers Felicia number one from Udon Comics. Image Comics Deep Cuts number one is written by Kyle Higgins and Joe Clark with art by Danilo Bayruth. Um, this is a story about New Orleans 1917 Red Light District and a clarinet player. Uh, everything from his POV. Doctor Strange number two from Marvel. Obviously, I haven't talked about number one yet. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Green Arrow number one. I was really disappointed to find out that uh, Marco Tamaki was not going to be actually doing the series. I may check this first one out just to kind of see how Joshua Williamson does. Uh, I have very little expectations, though. Some cool covers for it. You got David Nakayama... Um, a couple other names that I'm really bad at pronouncing, and also Frank Cho, which is way easier. Let's see, Grim number 10, I just caught up with Grim, we're gonna talk Grim as well as a couple of these next ones, um, in the comics catch-up. Really been enjoying what Stephanie Phillips has been doing there. Uh, Flaviano Armentero has just not at all been phoning it in, which I know sounds sarcastic, but it's not, he has been doing great. Harley Quinn number 29, again, we'll talk 28 in a little bit here, but I was very surprised. I, I did kind of like uh, 28 with a new creative team, so 29 here. Uh, we're getting some new funky stuff, including powers for Harley Quinn. Now, Lovesick, <laughs> uh, very much an R, X, R, whatever the, un like, the unrated like version, I guess, of anything Lovesick is that. The lovesick is not one for children. I think that would... And literally, I said it earlier, this literally gave me nightmares. I read one through six yesterday. Brilliant. Luana Vecchio, all on her own. Uh, she writes it in Italian, so we have a translator, Edward Chow. But, dude, Luana Vecchio, this has been brilliant. And at some point, I will get the spoons together to go back and read... 
uh, well, I'm sure be in the collected edition because you bet your butt I'm right. I'm I'm buying that. Um, I'll be going back and reading Luana Vecchio has in all of the issues a lot of explanation about her thoughts and artistic uh, influences and things in the end of the issue that she writes about. And I didn't really have the spoons at the time to stop and read all of that. I wanted to see where the story was going. Uh, but I will have to go back and read all of that in the collected edition because I really love it, especially in indie comics, when creators go through and give really dense explanation as to their drive in making it. It doesn't get talked about enough, but it's great. Mary Jane and Black Cat number five is also coming out this week. I believe this is the finale. Yes, the dramatic conclusion of its first arc is actually what's said. So this may continue, although there is no other issues solicited as of this time. Uh, Money Shot comes again. Yes, I did just say that because that's what the series is called. I don't think I finished. I honestly don't remember if I, I... I think I did. Maybe I did finish season one. Season one. The first uh, Money Shot series. Yes, it is exactly as horny as it sounds based on all of the titles. Uh, Jen Bartell did a truly fantastic X-rated cover of the first series. I would recommend that uh, if you collect... I collect X-rated covers. I don't know if that's weird. Um, but I do. You get a lot of them in indie stuff. This is Vault. Uh, and it's by Tim Seeley. What a horny dude, I guess. I don't know. Is that problematic? Uh, Giselle Legace is the artist. Uh, we have Variants by Zoe Thurgood, Skylar Patridge, Alexis Flower, and, of course, Tim Seeley himself. Because uh, he does art as well as writing. Monica Rambeau, Photon Number 5, I think is also the series finale. Um, it is, Yes. I wish they could give them a little bit more than five issues to try and earn a longer series, but whatever. Um, Photon number five, we have a variant by the Dodsons. That looks pretty cool. Uh, I, I really recommend the series. Writer is Eve L. Ewing, and the artist is Luca Maresca. Let's see. Rest in Peace by Scout Comics. Who knows when this is going to come out? I think I've mentioned this one like five times. So we'll just skip on to The Scorch number 17. The only reason I'm not even going to read anything about this, it's images. It's one of the um, um, Spawn. <laughs> I couldn't remember his name for a second. Spawn title's going right now. The only reason I'm into it is because it's a vast connecting cover going across various Spawn series, and this one has She Spawn, or Lady Spawn, or whatever they call her, um, who I think is cool, even though I can't remember her name right now, so I'd, I'd get that for that cover. Sins of Sinister is exhausting, I'm not gonna lie, I'm really not keeping up with it like I probably should be for the podcast, but that's life. Uh, but there's another Sins of Sinister issue coming out next week that is Dominion number one, I'm sure it's a one-shot. Thor number 33 by Torin Grombeck continues. This one is Blood of the Fathers Part 3, Legacy 759. Juan Gideon is still doing the interiors, and I am still really hoping um, that we get Angela in here. We might, because Lausa, who is Thora's even younger sister, or younger sister, um, she is apparently going to be in this one as a grown-up. So I think that's very interesting. And he gets some more Alex Ross. Oh my gosh, look, it's like George Clooney. That is hilarious. Go look up uh, Thor number 33, Alex Ross, Loki. Bitch drew George Clooney as Loki. 
This man, how does he get paid for stuff? Oh my god. Finally, uh, from Image Comics is World Tree number one. For as much as I hate on James Tinian, I've heard some really great stuff about this one about to come out. And I always have to pump up a comic that has a Jenny Frizen variant with it, which this one also does. You know what? Let's go through the variant cover list. We got Jenny Frizen, Tyler Kirkham, David Aha, Bill Sinkovich, Alan Ka, Skan, Zu Orzu, Albero Martinez Bueno, Peach Momoko, Carla Cohen, Ivan Tao, Bjorn Behrens, and Anna Marcano, not me, that's not my last name. I also probably said it wrong. Um, really, when you get this many variant artists that are well-known and, like, solid creatives on a covers for a series, you kind of know it's gonna be good, as much as I dislike James Tinian as a person. <laughs> Which is shocking, because I know he's very popular, but whatever. Um, that is what's coming out next week. Again, I do not talk about nearly everything that comes out in comics each week. This is just my own personal pull list of things that sound interesting. Hit up your local comic book shop or online retailer to ask them what they recommend for you if none of this sounded good for you, because comics are for everyone, and I can guarantee you that the content of them back that up. Going into comics catch-up, the recent reads that have been coming out that I have finally caught up with after basically the whole of April. Um, these are in no particular order. I'll probably talk about some more than others. Uh, some, for the most part, I like them all, but um, we'll, we'll talk about everything as we get there. We'll see how it goes. Uh, starting off with the possibly most fun, uh, it's Jeff, number one, from Marvel. This is by Kelly Thompson and Gurihiru, which is a duo of female Japanese artists who work under that name. Uh, very recognizable style. If you read It's Jeff, I have no doubt that you will recognize it. If you're familiar with Marvel comics at all, they're all over them. Um, the artistic details is the thing. It's obviously very cute. Jeff being the land shark character that I believe it was Kelly Thompson who created for, um, Gwenpool, I think. Um, and these stories in It's Jeff are digital one shots. Like some of them are one page, a couple of panels, some of them are a couple of pages. And it's just the collection of all of those, uh, on print for the first time. The artistic details are the thing, though, that it really makes it worth checking out because I don't I don't know if it's uh, Kelly Thompson or Gurihiru, but it's every every little place there could be some kind of detail or Easter egg for Marvel Comics kind of themed things there is, um, and so that makes it something that is a extremely quick read because it's mostly images. Uh, there's not a whole lot of text involved because Jeff doesn't speak. He's a shark that walks mm. with four legs. Um, and he's adorable, you know, that's what he's got going for him, but he doesn't talk. Uh, so they had to put the, uh, kind of the, t the reading time, they had to buffer that up with the details and it really does make it worth checking out. Speaking of Kelly Thompson, uh, we talked last week about how Captain Marvel is officially been announced to be in its final arc of this, uh, what was it, started in 2019, this run, by Kelly Thompson and a rotating series of artists, which don't even get me started on how infuriating that is as a uh, longtime reader of the same series. <laughs> 
artists are never the same and it throws you off. It's incredible how much it makes people stop reading it. And then, oh, wow, the for prophecy of people don't read comics written by women is being more and more fulfilled because we are rotating artists every th third issue. That shit is so annoying. Anyway, um, <laughs> we talked about this arc being the last arc, ending with issue 50 for this series, for this run of the series. Um, so 47 and 48 are the two that have come out. Obviously, we're back in the 1980s, repeating everything pretty much beat for beat that happened there. Uh, for some reason, again, I'm not happy with this arc, if you haven't figured that out. Um, <laughs> it's it's just like reading the X-Men comics of the 90s when Carol was with them and powerless and then transformed into her new form, Binary. And lo and behold, here we have Carol and a bunch of her X-Men friends, um, then a couple of others who I don't think were X-Men. And she has Binary with her, who is now its own person. Wow. And, you know, it, I love the character was great. And this arc didn't start off that great because it started off with uh, Kelly Thompson having Binary accidentally kill a kitten, which was pretty horrific. I'm a regular accessor of DoesTheDogDie.com. I have an account and everything. Um... I don't like that. <laughs> I would have rather seen a baby killed. I'm not even lying. You may hate me for that, but um, it's different when it's animals, okay? So, didn't start off that great, and now, lo and behold, um, you know, Binary has her big moment fighting the Kree, sorry, the Brood Queen. I think I've been saying Kree this whole time, but it's Brood. Whatever. Um, the Brood Queen, and then, like, just the brood queen suddenly decides to fight back or something and just kills her just like that, bites a chunk out of her side, which itself is pretty gruesome. <laughs> um, and then uh, I guess ghost binary kind of shows up to Carol and Carol on the final issue of 48 um, is like powered up in a new way. And she looks like kind of colorful and like an oil slick, you know how it looks rainbowish. <laughs> um, but this has been very disappointing. It First off, it doesn't matter what this new power set Carol's going to have or change into is going to be. It'll be temporary. The outfit change that might come with it, again, will be probably even more temporary. Because that's what this whole arc has been. Big things that mean very little. Like binary. I think the, the biggest thing that stuck is her sister... Uh, and her heritage, which wasn't actually this run, it came right before the run. So let's say her this sis, her sister, uh, who never shows up now. So uh, everything that's good in the series is temporary, and so I don't expect anything to kind of affect any <laughs> anything at all in the future for Carol. Um, but it really doesn't do any any good to have a female writer falling back on what I have always described and what has been professionally, you know, more or less described by critics as laziness and usually male writing when you have a male character who uh, needs to develop their character somehow, but the writer can't really figure out how to do that. Easiest way to do that, kill off the woman closest in his life. That's... That's a classic, easy, very lazy way to get things moving in a story. And that's what Thompson just did here with Binary. And that does nobody any favors. Just like the series ending, pure ending, ending on this note, and now 
her falling back on these extremely lazy, traditionally very toxic male writing characteristics. <clears throat> Moving on to She-Hulk, uh, issue 11, we had a new, actually, I think there was issue 12 too, hang on. Let me check further down my notes. Yes, okay, so issues 11 and 12. We have a new creative team for the uh, art, um, which actually does still kind of resemble the old art, but it's just a little bit, like, more jagged. I don't know. It's, it's still good. Um, issue 11 was extremely boring. Uh, it was just She-Hulk and her fight club, which I thought would be more interesting, and I really wasn't into it. Um, obviously, things with her and Jack of Harks are kind of being forced. They kind of have been this whole time, honestly, in my opinion. Um, so when she meets this new suave hero who can actually throw a punch at her, um, and she can't really take it the way she usually can, <laughs> of course she's going to start uh, being all flirtatious with him during the fights. And that, of course, continues in issue 12, which was the Legacy 175. Uh, the main issue, it was two stories in this one, the main issue was better than the... Uh, what it was continuing from in the last issue, thankfully. But it was still more of the um, obvious trend that she and Jack are coming to an end and she's going to end up in some kind of romantic heat the situation with this new dude who is honestly a little bit annoying. Uh, but then the second story in this Legacy 175 for She-Hulk was really cute. Uh, it was um, book club night, so... Um, a bunch of the superheroes, you know, Sue has to bring her kids because they were being really bad and she can't leave them alone. So she's making them go to everything she does that day as punishment, you know, stuff like that. Um, it had um, Janet Van Dyne in what I think is her best role, which is like backup to the heroes in their stories. I, I don't think her series is doing very well for that reason is because, um, like certain other male characters that have come and gone, I think her time has come and gone as well a little bit, but that doesn't mean we don't have to see her. She just works better as the backup to her friends. That seems to be a role that fits her really well. But the second story, it had a lot of really fun heroes uh, and a couple of villains in it, and they were uh, mostly female, and then when Cap shows up at the end to uh, tell, tell She-Hulk that he needs help, they all, of course, bust out to help him together. Um, and then, let's see, going back up the list, Harley Quinn 28 and 29, actually. Uh, da -da -da. Nope, just Harley Quinn 28, looks like. I think 29 comes out next week. Uh, but we had the new creative team, and I talked about that previously, how I had very, very low expectations. And I'm happy to report that as of this single issue, at least... I was surprisingly pleased with the new creative team. The art is fantastic. Sweeney Boo is doing a great job um, with the uh, kookiness of the Harley art. And I'm sure people, God, I hope people are being nicer to her about it than they were to the last guy who was doing the art um, at the beginning of the of this run. <laughs> people were so, it was Riley Rospo, that's who it was. People were so mean to him about his art style, even though I thought it fit really well, but I digress. Um, surprisingly good. Um, they also added what I think may be for the first canon time in DC Comics. Uh, Harley gets a superpower somehow on accident. I think it has to do with how the end of the last arc kind of was going and the universe hopping thing. Uh, but she could basically um, accidentally sort of grab things from other universes 
and now you know the universe police are out to stop her because she's can break the world or whatever standard comic stuff but um surprisingly happy with it and don't forget to check out the jenny frizzen covers because she is now moved from uh see she's doing poison ivy i think every other issue and uh has moved from catwoman to the harley quinn series for their variant covers Doctor Strange number one is over at Marvel again. Uh, will not be keeping up with this probably more than a couple of issues. I'm only reading it all because I desperately love Clea. Um, and we're already seeing signs of the same old relationship issues from the past with Stephen and Clea where he can't really handle the power dynamic of her being, well, right now, the, the modern times, it would be a hell lord on Earth. Um, and just previously a, um, a Sorcerer Supreme who could easily keep up with him. So, and not only that, Sorcerer Supreme of two dimensions at the same time, which everybody was saying would break you mentally, and bitch did it just fine. <clears throat> One of the ways that uh, this is kind of displayed in this series and, you know, you can say morality this, morality that, but uh, when it comes to the very bad people that they're dealing with, Clea just once, I mean, she's, let's be honest, she's the daughter of um, Umar and, I mean, some magical dude, but um, she's the daughter of Umar, <laughs> the niece of Dormammu. Uh, she's going to have a nature that to just kind of end the problem. Uh, and Stephen is just not about that. Stephen is like, no, 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 we're gonna try and let the bad guys keep doing bad things. Uh, but yeah, so I think that's, and by issue three, she's not even in the solicitation when they're one-on-one -on -one dealing with her uncle Dormammu, which makes no sense to me. So I'm not, this issue two coming out this coming week, I think I, very little hopes about that one. Um, but yeah, basically, I talked about the Strange series, which was supposed to be Clea's first solo series, and we all know how I went with that. So moving on, uh, Poison Ivy number 10. Ivy is supposed to be going to Gotham to be back with Harley, and for whatever reason, I don't recall, uh, some guru that's supposed to be a playoff, Gwyneth Paltrow, obviously, um, she, her roommate or whatever, she makes her, convinces her somehow to go through California. Ivy ends up in this weird drug-induced orgy with a bunch of women at a wellness camp run by basically Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, and then I think they all die when she discovers, or as she's discovering really in the process, that her Lamia, or Lamia, those mushrooms that kind of she was using to kill everybody, are now not just in her, they're just, they have now, like, adapted to the outside environment, and it's gonna kill everybody around her, I guess. It was a little bit, um, it was a little bit confusing, not gonna lie, because for a minute it looked like it was gonna be more stuff about Dr. What's-His-Name, um, from the previous arc, but, which we're still kind of in? <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, but yeah, um, the, the orgy was weird, I'm not gonna lie, um, yeah, it, it, it didn't really fit anything that was going on, especially, like, what, two, one or two issues post- Harley returning? <laughs> Very strange. I, I'm curious what the heck that was about. Uh, the Ambassadors is the Mark Millar project. Really enjoyed that one. Um, I think it was just issues one and two that are out so far. The first issue had art by Frank Quietly and the second by Carl Kershaw. Both of them had, 
I think, really good styles for what was going on in the issue. Uh, we meet the the woman who's in charge of the project. Of course, the ambassador's plot is people are vying to win one of, like, seven slots um, to join a superhero team and have superhero powers. And it turns out that it's this woman who genetically discovered all of it. She gave her... She's actually in jail. She gave herself a second body. Um, and it was, it was, like, younger and smarter, and she figured out the... It's it's very complicated, but <laughs> it I was really good. There's this whole thing about her ex husband, um, somehow has to do with her having been in jail, and so that version of her kills itself, and then the new version of her uh, gets all of her like thoughts uploaded into it, and um, she she uh, gives herself a bunch of these superpowers that she is then going to designate to these seven people based on I guess whoever her team chooses or whoever she chooses that her team points out. Um, I don't remember the deeds that people did, really, but in issue two, we meet Codename India, Codename Mexico. Uh, Codename India, they just call them that because that's the country that they're going to be from. Uh, he was in a coma for seven years. I do recall that. he After getting um, after getting shot in the head, I actually think is what it was. And then her team, by the time that you know the, the modern era comes around and this is all happening, her team hears about that. Because uh, he was saving someone during a stick-up, I believe. Um, then they hear about that and they choose him and are able to save him because they have the technology to do that, among other things. Um, and so in the next issue, I think we're going to meet Codename France. Oh, in the end of the third, sorry, the end of the second issue, um, I believe it is Codename India who is approached by um, the lackeys of her ex-husband, um, asking for him to basically be their ear on the inside, eyes and ears on the inside, for a hundred million dollars. So, uh, obviously somebody in the team is going to end up taking that. If it's him or not, we'll have to see. I also read the first two issues of Godfell. I didn't, I don't think I'm going to keep up with the third or beyond, because, uh, the world building, while it's very plentiful it's a lot it's it's rather intense actually uh the writing is not does not match it doesn't really fit it's it's not that great um the the body also i couldn't get over how the the sizing of the body is different from image to image like from one shot it looks like they're only like a third of the size of the body and then from another they're crawling through it like it's a tunnel um and it doesn't really make sense how that works it also doesn't really make sense the dude she skinned his chest but he's still alive and totally fine i don't know i feel like it's just a lot comics are one thing but the stretch of the imagination is just a bit weird on this one especially the lack of consistency in the size of the monster or the god i guess is what it is that's the part that really strikes me but there's too much other stuff i wish they would stick to what the heck is this thing? Uh, Lovesick, I kind of already talked about. Uh, we'll get back to that. I may uh, do talk about more about that one next week after issue seven comes out, or after I read issue seven. Um, and then JSA number three. So I entirely skipped the World War II era part of it because I 
hate that kind of comic. I'm sorry, but I I can't. <laughs> um, I think they're extremely boring. So I I don't think I even skimmed it. I think I straight up skipped it. Um, and it did confirm or clarify the Huntresses. Um, Helena Wayne is the Huntress 26 years on from our time, and Helena Bertinelli is the Huntress of our current time in DC Comics. So if I was, I know I mentioned I was confused about that in the past. Past. There is the answer, and the answer to who our villain is in in this series is some kind of actual Nazi from World War II. That's how that part. Came. This is that's where I I would probably understand it better if I read those parts. Uh, but he I guess he gained powers and now he can travel through time and wants to uh, destroy the JSA. They're not really sure honestly um, because he's killed the future JSA first which means that he's not doing it to change the past because that obviously wouldn't do that. So they're not really sure what his, what his dealio is yet. Um, but he is now arrived in the modern era to kill, um, the silver age justice society who just kind of arrived in whatever the heck event was for DC that they all kind of came back at. Um, so we'll have to see, Apparently, they're theoretically they're all gonna die as well. I don't know. We'll see. Although I was disappointed with uh, stuff about Clea's character and the this dump of comics, uh, Patsy Walker has actually had it going on. Uh, Hellcat one and two were really good. This is a five issue series by Christopher Cantwell, who was writing Patsy also in um his Iron Man run that recently ended like in February or something. Uh, he, he wrote her for a good chunk of it. Um, and she had a pretty pivotal role, but he did a really great job handling her character. And that's obviously why they gave him first the Iron Man Hellcat annual, which starred Patsy almost primarily. And now, um, enough people like that, that we're getting a five issue Hellcat series. So I'm hoping that, the positive upswing for Patsy Walker's publications continues, especially since the last couple of series that she had published about her were made fun of vastly, uh, largely all over the internet. So, and I can't really defend them too much, but anyway, so this series is good so far. We have two issues. Um, it gives her a little bit of growth in her backstory as well um because remember the character of patsy walker who we saw in the comics during the days of patsy walker friendship romance comics um way back when pre marvel universe um that is not Pat what patsy's life was actually like that was the comics that her mom was writing about an idealized version of her daughter Patsy. So in here we we learn about regular girl Patsy working at a burger joint and making money by writing the papers for kids at her school who either can't, don't want to, or um, are too stupid to. Because can't was the one kid who um, he's he could he's smart, but he uh, works too much because his family is poor, so he can't he doesn't have time to write his paper. And then you know people who can't in other ways. <laughs> um, so that's what Patsy is doing. She overcharges for people like Hetty, who is her like best friend rival, who you see a lot more as only a rival in this retelling. Uh, and then she doesn't charge the dude who's her co-worker at the burger joint. Um, and it really shows Hetty as the high society girl on the outside, who is actually secretly super self-conscious and absolutely terrified at all times on the inside. 
In the modern times, though, Patsy is living in San Francisco, which is awesome because I love that city. I lived there myself for a few years. Um, she has some issues with her telepathic abilities, which we learned about in previous Cantwell, Patsy Walker stuff that was happening um, around Iron Man days. And we learn that she regularly teams up with Sleepwalker, um, and he has been now suspended by his higher-ups, and she has been arrested under both of them for reasons being suspicion of killing Spalding Graham, um, because Patsy was dating him. So, uh, the guy who is the human in Sleepwalker, uh, the human Sleepwalker is, uh, I guess I gotta kind of explain that. I don't know what the like the details, but basically he's a other dimensional alien who is a race of people who solve crimes through the dreamscapes, kinda. Um, so he's like he looks completely he's basically looks like Martian Manhunter. We'll just go with that. Um in like robes. Anyway, um so they have to like possess a host, and when the host sleeps that's when Sleepwalker comes out and does the, you know, Sleepwalker stuff. Um, so Sleepwalker, the creature, the alien guy, has been suspended by his higher-ups. He's been put in Green Lantern prison, you know, not really, but basically that's what's happening here. Because um, they think that he killed Spalding Graham out of his host's jealousy since his host is in love with Patsy. Patsy was arrested, obviously, because she was found at the crime scene covered in blood. <laughs> but she can't remember anything about what happened. Uh, all she found was this little star thing that some tool of Sleepwalkers. I'm actually have no idea what it is. I'm not that familiar with Sleepwalker. I just know the general basics. She found it phased through a floorboard in her house where they found the dude's body, which was... Uh, she described it as every atom in the body was ripped apart and then put back together in a different order. So that's pretty horrifying. <laughs> but apparently the star thing can do that, and it's sleepwalkers, and she found it on the crime scene, so she's trying to figure out how to see if uh, the dude really did kill Spalding. Uh, and then, of course, in issue two, we have um, the bunny rabbit teddy bear thing, the stuffed bunny rabbit plushie which is somehow possessed, I don't remember how, but uh, it's back from the uh, Hellcat Iron Man annual number one from last year. Uh, it's possessed by her ex-husband Damon Hellstrom, um, <laughs> son of Satan, uh, and he talks to her through it, and for whatever reason she keeps unconsciously psychically reaching out to him, and that's apparently how he keeps getting into, not how he keeps getting it, but why he keeps like showing up to talk to her, because he feels her connection and like desire to talk to somebody about stuff. And then, of course, we get Blackheart in the end of the issue. Uh, we find out that he has something to do with this Spalding Graham guy's death, um, because he is, uh, well, but not because, but he is a Hell Lord, just like um, the Son of Satan is. So, yeah, somehow he's into that. And also, it's it's you should note that Blackheart is one of the, like... Mephisto's son. He's Mephisto's son, yes. He's also one of the one of the gang um, of like the Hellstrom uh, menagerie of characters, let's say, um, that includes 
the guy whose name I can't remember right now, but was the one who convinced Patsy to kill herself, which is actually brought up quite a bit in this issue as well. Issue two, I should say, as well. Um, and it does seem to be taking a different kind of stance. It's taking, um, in issue two, it's taking a Damon stance, what his perspective was on all of that, which is interesting, a little bit toxic, but it's still interesting to read. Um, and I'm curious how that's going to go and how that's going to affect Patsy and her own depict her own thoughts on how things are or were possibly uh, going forward. I really enjoy how he's tying in the stuff about her childhood. Hetty is a character who's at the modern day uh, timeline as well, because Hetty actually dated Spalding Graham before Patsy did. So it's still kind of this funny little uh, frenemy thing. Although it does seem more like enemies than friends was the actual case. Talking about that enough, um, I am not going to give a Lazarus Planet Revenge of the Gods rundown. It's been like three issues. I couldn't get through the second one. I'm sorry. It was extremely boring. Um, so if you wanted to hear about that, too bad, I guess. Grim number eight and nine have been fantastic. This is still, um, Stephanie Phillips and Flaviano Armentero uh, are the creators on this one. Really, really, they, they, they just do a fantastic job. It's a very cool story. Um, in issue eight, we actually meet Jessica's mother. Obviously, we know now that Death, or the guy who was previously Death, who is now not existent anymore, uh, that was her father. So we meet this woman. She's in jail we don't really know much more than that at this point. And we learned that Jessica, since her father died, she is now the Grim Reaper. Actually, scratch that. It's not because her father died. It's actually just what she was born as. Um, which is interesting. There's a cool a cool kind of mythology that's even coming out of this. Also, we meet the Fates, you know, the traditionally three old crones or whatever you want to call them. They are three drag queens. I feel like that is very appropriate with the way that the, the, the themology, the themes of this series has kind of been going. Um, and they tell her, the, the three Fates tell her that she needs to, Jessica needs to save the End, who is the entity who killed her father, if she wants to save the living. And then Grim number nine, we get a lot of Marcel's backstory, which you'll have to read that yourself to go check that out. It's very tragic, of course. It has to do with vampires, I think. It wasn't vampires. You can read the story. It's very tragic. Um, and then you get a little bit more on Jessica's mother, whose name is Lila, and there's something about an amulet. We'll have to wait till issue 10, which I think is the last one before a break in the series once again. So t make sure you don't miss that one. All Against All numbers four and five were the finale of the series. Uh, basically how things go is the scientist's daughter is able to um, kind of wake him. We get a lot of backstory on the scientist in this one. The villain gets a, a new body that was some kind of augmentation of the creatures they had been um, keeping an eye on in these various like biomes. Um, and then the scientist's... Um, who's there with his daughter now, he warns her that Helpless, the human boy he had saved for all these years, is going to kill everybody in the augmented gravity because it makes him stronger to be in lighter gravity. Or no, it's not that. It's that he's just, yeah, he's just stronger from being under heavy gravity. Uh, and then in the, in the finale issue... The entire species uh, ends up having to move forward, and the scientist who we started the series off, her father, the, the girl's father, um, he is actually stuck attached to the body of, I believe it was the alligator, 
or no, it was the ape, I think. Um, whatever creature it was, it wouldn't let him go, so he ends up stuck there as like this new thing on Earth. Life persists. Like what is it? Life finds a way. Obviously, Purgatory Must Die was my favorite off this list because that is just, it's just so good, okay? It's amazing how it was just so immediately good. Uh, and, and the other two that came before this for her by these same creators was, are equally as good. Uh, so the last, end of the last issue ended where she, like, ate the beast and they all thought that she died or something. No, she just went to a higher plane of existence, ter- literally turned into a goddess because the beast is now within her. So she has this whole, the the whole thing about her powers is what this all comes down to, right? Is that anybody who she drinks, uh, and who she kills by drinking their blood, she absorbs them and their essence. So she contains within her all of these lives of these people, as well as their knowledge. Um, and it's how in previous series, all these witches were going to try and take over her body by purposely doing that and getting up on her real self. It's a long story. You can read it. So when she so when she ate the, and killed the beast, it is now within her and she contains its power and its knowledge. And so basically she finds out that it was her before her. It was in another dimension eating in everything and con- taking all of them inside of it and eating up all of their knowledge and containing all of the, all those things power. And it got so hungry that it ate its entire world, like literally the entire world. And then realized that it fucked up and was like, shit, I got to go to another planet. And it it goes into our dimension and finds Earth. Uh, And it just sits there in the Garden of Eden, kind of like sithering, seething for a while until gets eaten by purgatory. So then Lilith comes up and rips her heart out. Um, and everybody thinks that she died and Vampirella gets really sad because she's like, oh, dang, I'm actually kind of, this is actually kind of my fault because I brought the sacred four here because it's not six of them anymore. Um, they're not all on the same team at least, but then Purgatory ends up being alive because everybody forgets that one of her powers is to make you think you're seeing things you're not. So that actually never happened. And now one of her powers is apparently, uh, self-transmutation or something like that where she can um change her form and like so even if i even if i was i'm wrong and Lilith did grab her heart purgatory was capable of changing the heart into just flesh or fat or just body goop uh so it didn't really matter anyway because now she contains all those powers that this ancient beast from another dimension has which is super cool and i really hope they don't do some stupid thing like take all her power away in the end because they've actually done that with her in the past but that was the whole lady death i'm getting ahead of myself we'll talk about that in october on that special um the issue ends with the various gods who she's meant to be killing on a crusade who are terrified of her and who hired all these other characters to come and try to kill her um they end up getting fed up and they're like okay let's do it ourselves so they go and they possess all the bodies on site so that they can fight her themselves. And I really hope she kills them all, because that would be hilarious. Although one of them is Lady Hell, who is the kind of dynamite version of Lady Death, because they could, they didn't get Lady Death when they got all the other Chaos Comics characters way back when. Um, so I don't think she could get killed. I think she's got to be like part of the story still or something. We'll see. 
our biggest segment or our last big segment here is TV and movies. Uh, so things that are new and noteworthy, things that we've watched and enjoyed the past couple of weeks since we've had a last episode, uh, starting off with springtime season anime that are coming out that I'm watching right now. Uh, Tonakawa, Over the Moon for You, is season two, has happened, is uh, episodes one through, I think, three are up there on Crunchyroll. These are all Crunchyroll, that's what I have. I know High Dive is the other one, I don't, I don't have that one yet. Um... Why Raylene Ended Up at the Duke's Mansion is also a really fun one. Kamikatsu Working for God in a Godless World, I've only seen one episode of, but it seems promising. Of course, Konosuba, an explosion on this wonderful world we all knew we'd watch and enjoy. My Clue's First Friend seems very wholesome and cute, as does A Galaxy Next Door, if a little bit more mature, I think. I'm not sure, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Hell's Paradise and My Home Hero are pretty dark, but interesting in their own ways. In Another World with My Smartphone Season 2 is extremely generic. We'll see how long I have the patience for that. And then, of course, Kuma 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 Bear Punch, the Season 2 of Kuma 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 Bear, is awesome. I'm super happy that it's back and that it's getting an English dub. Um, I absolutely love it. It's adorable, and I recommend it to everybody. Uh, things that are not anime. A couple of things... That uh, first, I watched Shazam, and it was very, very mediocre. Um, it's a six and a half out of ten. It was, it was nothing to, nothing to write home about. Um, and then, of course, Yellow Jackets is still happening and is excellent. Beef came out on Netflix, which was um, Ali Wong and Steven Yoon, yeah. uh, Yen, whatever. Um, I always mispronounce everything. <laughs> getting into a uh what starts as a um road rage incident <laughs> and just kind of spirals from there but i couldn't i couldn't get past steven yin's character because it, i mean he drove across somebody's lawn to try to cut her off that was obviously right then i would have just called the cops and been like yo this guy is crazy but anyway you watch the whole thing um, you have more patience for idiots than me, apparently. But um, go ahead and let me know how how let us know how that went. Um, I really appreciated it because it's a uh, you know a whole Asian cast mm -hmm. and like that whole thing. Basically, the whole underlying theme of the show is generational Asian trauma. And the whole thing that comes with being an American-born Asian and the expectations that you're mm -hmm. set to live under. Um, so yes, it does start out as a generic road rage incident. <laughs> um, Ali Wong is like this, you know, she is a self-made um, Asian woman who came up, but she's kind of realized that she doesn't want to be, you know, the traditional, like, stay-at-home housewife and that, you know, traditional normal values. Um, and she also kind of is at a awkward spot with her relationship with her husband where it's kind of like uh, they were they were starting they were going to couples therapy and opening up and then she was just saying how she felt like she was under so much pressure and she was opening up to him and he opens up and says yeah thank you so much like I have times that I think about like if I never met you or we had the kid that's that's not them something you want to hear from your partner so she's kind of going through that and Stephen Yin's character is he's he's kind of this guy who's who's like hard on his luck but then he his whole scheme is to get enough money to um build a house to get his parents from korea into the u.s because they had a hotel business in here um but then the financial crisis of 2008 happened and they had to sell it and his parents had to move back to korea 
Um, but what you end up fighting out um, later on is it's kind of it's a spoiler, but you know everybody's already seen it, seen enough talk. The day that that happens, when Ali Wong like you know passes him and he honks at her, he was about to go kill himself, and happened ironically enough through that thing like her you know honking and flipping him off is what stopped him off it's it's funny how all that worked out but yeah i really appreciated it because it just shows how difficult and how three-dimensional people are and how like you know everybody's going through something like you know both of them had these completely external issues that had nothing to do with the the road rage incident but just because neither one of them had healthy outlets to let out all of these frustrations and rage and everything else it may be it just it just blew up on that day for them and then kind of ended up into this whole thing of having beef with this random person um but yeah i really enjoyed it i thought it was really fun um the, it was a, it was a great take on the end um they ended up like sitting down and having like an actual conversation because both of them were so used to like I have to answer the things that will make my family and the people around me happy not necessarily what makes me happy um, and so then they, they they end up getting into another car accident later on, but both trying to crash into each other again, which is hilarious. I thought it was great. So then they getting crashed and lost in the woods and then just end up bonding and going like, wow, I've never had this real of a conversation with anybody before. Um, yeah. And <laughs> lots of things happen along the way. Yes. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a great trip. But yeah, that's the overarching themes is just, you know, you never know what people are going through. And then like the great themes of generational trauma and trying to break that. Awesome. So that brings us into the last couple of things, which are going to be mostly... Well, okay, let's, let's, we'll start with Star Wars. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Star Wars Celebration happened at this point like two or three weeks ago. We're so behind. Uh, and there's a lot of, lot of cool news with that. But we'll hit the highlights, um, starting with, obviously, the I think the next thing that's coming for live action, at least, which will be Ahsoka. They showed a trailer for that one. They showed Hera Syndulla being played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Sabine Wren being played by Natasha Lou Bordizzo. Um, and of course, everybody wanted him to play Admiral Thrawn. Lars Mikkelsen is back as Grand Admiral Thrawn from Rebels. All of these characters from Rebels, except for Ahsoka, who's been everywhere. Um... The hype for this is very much real. They even seized a season two coming uh, pre-season one. They must be pretty confident about that. So um, I fully expect this to be an excellent show based on their own confidence on it. I had a bunch of that. Um, yeah, it was. It's And also with this trailer, we've officially seen everybody from the Rebels mm. show in live yes. action. Because uh, you even get like a half second shot mm -hmm. of uh, Ezra mm -hmm. on the holocron thing. Um, so you have Hera, you have Sabine, and then, um, I'm not sure if people caught it, but it was very, it even took me a second, but I was like, is that really him? Mm. Uh, Zeb shows up in Mando yes. at the, that at was the, awesome. at the, um, the new, the new, uh, what is it called? The new, the, the new Republic, the new Republic, the new Republic bar. And I was like, that's Zeb's race. And then he starts speaking and then I'm like, holy shit, that is, that is Zeb. Um, so it's really <laughs> cool that their pilot ended up coming to do something. I really would love to see, I think that Dave Filoni is eventually going to have them meet each other. They have to meet each other at some point during that. Um, show Ahsoka show mm -hmm. I feel like yeah. um, also huge awesome nod to um, the the Legends books literally calling Thrawn heir to the Empire so they're, mm. they're they're bringing all that in and they're actually making a lot of the Timothy Zahn books can which were those are fantastic it really shows it it really gives you like a good angle of how much like 
hope they had in Thrawn. Like, even Palpatine was like, yes, I am, he is my one guy that's not Force-sensitive that will carry this on for us forever. So it's really cool they're going into that. And also really love to see that um, Lars Mikkelsen is coming back to reprise his role. I, I love that they're getting the actors who did their voice actors, if they wanted to come in and do it live action and do it, you know. Yeah, that's really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, in Star Wars Visions, uh, Visions was basically um, a international take on Star Wars stories from across the, the Star Wars universe. And that was really, really awesome. Um, what they have to say about it officially is that Vision gives the Star Wars license to creators from all over the world to produce their own unique stories, shows a ton of different art styles coming from to the Vision's world. These include CGI, hand-drawn, and even what looks to be claymation. Because uh, they did give a Season 2 trailer, and Season 2 is also set to bring more of a global perspective to Visions when it premieres, and that is going to be May 4th. Speaking of May, this is totally off-topic, but the next episode I will totally be talking about it. Free Comic Book Day is Saturday, May 6th. Anything to add for the Visions? For the visions, uh, for yeah, I, I, I love the fact that um, it really shows, like especially in season one, that they told them you don't have to stick to canon. You can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You, you no know, strings attached. I really think that let these stu- you know studios have complete creative freedom because mm-hmm. you're seeing because so- you know Star Wars shouldn't mean this one narrow minded thing for one people. You know, like it shouldn't be like oh, it's centered around Skywalkers or it's centered around this. It's a vast meaning, and it's cool to see that. Definitely. The Bad Batch is coming back for a third and final season that was confirmed at Star Wars Celebration, and apparently so will Fennec Shand, who will show back up in the show alongside the regular cast. We haven't caught up. We haven't caught up on that. (laughs) I've seen a few spoilers. Uh, Apparently, it's going to be a bit of a tragic season, but still good. I checked with somebody; it's still really good. Um, So we'll we'll have more of that, I guess, once we eventually catch back up on that. Hopefully, before season three happens. And then we got the first real information about the Acolyte um, by series creator Leslie Highland, and it's going to premiere in. Uh, 2024 on Disney Plus being set during the end of the High Republic era. Some things that she said about it was um, that she expl- that she started brainstorming the Acolyte by challenging the status quo. She says, You just go, well, where's that part? Nobody's going. What about that? And so to me, the institution of the Jedi was that. They trained children so they... So that seems super complicated of a thing. It's not criticism. It's just like, well, that seems strange. She even questioned decisions made by Lucasfilm previously, the ones regularly brought up by fans, such as how Palpatine became Supreme Chancellor without Yoda knowing. Another interesting point in this one is the cast. Uh, You have a really amazing cast, uh, frankly, of young actors. Uh, It's Daphne King, Lee Jung-jae, which I probably said wrong. If I, I'm going to do that again, and it's going to be bad. I'm sorry. Amanda Steinberg or Stenberg, Manny Jacinto, Jody Turner Smith, Carrie Ann Moss, and more. And just to explain those names, you'll know Carrie Ann Moss. She's not young. She's um, you know she's an old she's she's a woman. Um, <laughs> uh, she was in the Matrix most you know primarily. Obviously, was the lawyer in Jessica Jones. Um, Turner Smith was in Anne Boleyn 2021, which I didn't even know was a thing. And I was also in Without Remorse. Jacinto or Jacinto, somebody tell me, please. 
He was in The Good Place, I Want You Back, and apparently Top Gun Maverick. Stenberg was in Where Hands Touch, where was that Nazi love movie? It's on oh, Netflix. Yeah, I about that. <laughs> she was also in The Hate You Give and Bodies, 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 which was awesome. Uh, and then Lee was in Squid Game, uh, and he is considered to be one of the most successful actors in South Korea. And lastly, Daphne King. Uh, she, of course, was in Logan and His Dark Materials, playing not X-23, uh, but playing Laura Kinney in Logan. So this was pretty cool. Um, I'm glad to see that her career is continuing to go upwards. Anything to add about what is this one? The Acolyte. <laughs> Um, no, I'm just very interested. I didn't know that that was the time play she was going after, yeah. so that's going to be a lot of fun. And oh, she's I, yeah, she's also described it as Kill Bill meets Frozen, so... That's if, kind of Yeah, you can find her explanation for that online very I'm, easily. I'm more on board for that now, even yeah. though I haven't seen Frozen. Um, but still, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I like that now. I think I was saying something where, that just along the lines we were watching Mandalorian the other day. I love how they're going in and filling in all these mm, gaps, because yeah. especially even, even in the mainline, um, the numbered movies, you know, there's like, you know, 19 years in between uh what is it three and four and then in between six and seven that's another 35 years so you have those two about 50 years to play with and then you also have the thousands of years before so i love that they're just filling in all these gaps and giving us more to play with and not just you know the the rebel fighters and empire it's more than just that then we have Andor. They uh, talked about season two, and they are aiming for an August 2024 premiere. They said they started shooting in November, and they're about halfway through. They're going to shoot through August, and they are on schedule. When they finish in August, they're going to spend a year on post, and then so they suppose they'll come out the following August. You watched Andor season one. I know a lot of people yes. really, really love that, and you'll see... <laughs> Unfortunately, you'll uh, you'll see a lot of the people who uh, make fun of things like Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett will be really, really pro things like Andor or even the Bad Batch was one that I saw people like trying to compare. This is so much better than this. It's like, come on, guys, it's all Star Wars. Let's calm down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's uh, I remember a couple of years ago, somebody asked my thoughts on if, if I was OK with so much Star Wars and I, I broke it down as. There was points in time where we, we, just like I said, we didn't get Star Wars for 35 years, anything. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was just dry. Nothing was there. Um, so now, if you want to read a Star Wars book, you can. If you want to read a Star Wars comic book, you can. If you want to play a Star Wars video game, you can. You know, you you have so many ways to get Star Wars now. So I appreciate that. So whatever your favorite form of media is. Um, but Andor is fantastic. What I was, what my point is meaning is that, you know, if you want, like, the fun you know, a lot of nods to Legends and other Star Wars, you know, creations, you can watch Mando and have a great time with that. But, you know, if you're more of like, I want to know how the Rebellion started, what is the gritty, like, you know, guerrilla warfare that they had to do to get to the point where they gave people freedom, you can watch Andor for that. You know, it's just like I said, Star Wars is so many different things now. But yeah, I, I it's probably one of my favorite newer Star Wars. I actually like it a little bit more than Mando, but I'm somebody who's <laughs> more into that, like, cloak and dagger spy games and mm-hmm. kind of stuff you so are. yeah <laughs> they gave the first look of skeleton crew at star wars celebration which is the jude law project focused on a younger cast of characters and is supposed to have a goonies show type inspirations 
Um, the trailer that showed them was apparently shown with kids in class going through a residential area, running through a forest, and more. We also have, we're going back to multiple directors for the series on this one, like they do with Mando, which is going to include, appropriately, John Watts, David Lowry, The Daniels, no idea who they are, Jake Schreier, Bryce Dallas Howard, and Lee Isaac Chung. I'm pretty sure The Daniels are the guys who directed everything everywhere all at once. Oh, Okay. I, yeah, I saw the I saw like the little thumbnail they had the picture of them, but besides that, I, I don't know. Uh, Tales of the Jedi is going to be getting season two as well. It was another one we didn't finish. I don't think. Uh, oh no, that was the miniseries when we finished that. Oh, we did. Okay, yeah. uh, they're going to be doing some more of it. Dave Filoni's still in charge. They are also doing a couple of updates on Disney Star Tours. Uh, I didn't look at the details, but I know that's the. Uh, it's not the um, the new Star Wars stuff at Disneyland. Star Tours is the thing that's out in just Tomorrowland. It's out kind of by itself, unless they changed it that much. I don't think they did. Um, and I guess they're giving it a new ride for it to take you on. So if you've been going on it for years, next time it'll be new. Yay. They did talk also Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny. They showed apparently some clips. I'm only seeing good feedback from anything that people have seen from this. Same. Um, so I'm actually kind of excited for it. I mean, I enjoyed the last one that came out. I remember sitting in the theater and the moment that they revealed the alien things in that spinny chamber, I was like, okay, you lost me here. <laughs> it was good up until that moment. And then after that, those, those last, I swear, it was like the last 10 minutes of the movie because then the spaceship takes off and they're all like, wow. So how do people are never going to believe us about this? And then that's like it. It's like, what? <laughs> what? Just suddenly aliens. What the fuck? Um, but yeah, this one should be fun. Uh, Harrison Ford seemed to enjoy doing it, and as long as that's legit, and I'm fine with it. Uh, the big thing, though, the big, big thing was the three new Star Wars movies. You saw a lot of BS going around online about these as soon as they were kind of announced and as this was going, because the first thing you saw was that there was going to be a trio of Rey movies. That is not correct. <laughs> uh, we have three movies. It's It's... I don't know if they're even calling it a trilogy as a new way that it's coming because they're set in three different completely separate eras. Um, what Kathleen Kennedy has to say about it is we're pretty far along. These are things, as you can imagine, certainly looking at what Dave's been doing with Soka, that'll be at least six, seven years building to what it is we're going to be doing in a movie. So first off, you have Dave Filoni, who, as we know, the creator of Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and Rebels. Um, that was really phrased poorly. He he created The Clone Wars and Rebels shows. <laughs> Uh, he was also executive producer, episodic director, and writer of Mando and Book of Boba Fett, and is the creative executive producer on Ahsoka. His movie is going to, quote, focus on the New Republic and tie together the prequels with the Mando series, with the sequel, and the Mando series, pre no, sorry, getting this out wrong, prequels with the Mando series, with the sequels, Okay. Thoughts on this Dave Filoni movie? That well, okay. Let me finish that. My thoughts on it. It sounds like this is going to be wrapping up Filoni's vision of Star Wars. Yes, which scares me. <laughs> I was going to say, kind of a hot take. Um, that will probably be good because you don't want the entirety of most of Star Wars telling storytelling to just be under one person, one or two yeah, people. Yeah. Which, which not not to compare them, but like how. 
like um, in Andor, Tony Gilroy, he wasn't just him. He had a whole entire writer's room. And like mm-hmm. he, it wasn't, you know, well, it wasn't like Dave Filoni and John Favreau was like, oh, you have to do this, that, and the third. But it's kind of like their things in their area. You kind of wanted to have like everybody be one, one cohesive thing. I don't know, but yeah. But yeah, at the same time, you don't want it to be too many cooks in the kitchen. Yes. Yeah. So I think having what sounds like one creator on each of these three projects we're going through is probably a good, not creator, but one lead creator that they're going back to as this is the one who's going to be making the final say on stuff. It's probably going to be a ton of people below them helping them out. And also the fact that they have all three of these planned out with directors, and mm-hmm. so they're probably already going to start talking about how all three of these movies are going to flow together then yeah. versus announcing the director as the movies come out. Yeah. Get all this set up beforehand so you can have one yep. piece of story. Uh, then for James Mangold, who you know as the director of Logan and, of course, the upcoming Di- Indiana Jones Dial of Destiny movie. Now, this was another one that people, there was some other project that's Star Wars related that he's working on as well. And for some reason, there were reports that he dropped the star, the this project to pick up that one. That is not true. He is working on a film that will, quote, go back to the dawn of the Jedi. So what that means is pre-Republic. It's pre-Jedi. Um, I think the little updated timeline of Star Wars stuff that we've got, they updated their live for the audience to see. There was like two new ones at the beginning and two at the end. So what you have is pre-Jedi and then Dawn of the Jedi. And that's what we're going to be... And I, I, I don't know. It's, wor- it's definitely worth, if you are shaky on this at all, to watch his video, um, the, the video of him at Star Wars Celebration talking about it, because he did a, he has a very strong grasp of what he wants to do with it, you can tell, and it's, it, it seems to really fit that. And so this is like, obviously you have the Old Republic, right, and everybody, this is pre-Old Republic stuff. This is stuff that's, we might make it far enough up to see the war between the Jedi that maybe between the Jedi, probably not because between the Jedi and the Mandalorians, because that's still what thousands of years still like at least 10,000 year gap because what the the old this is going to be 25,000 years from where they're at in the most modern star wars stuff isn't it like 10,000 years that the high Rep- the old republic was i think so no, this no, is no, no, no. I, i'm not sure i gotta look at well, the time in, in any case I, i'm willing to bet there's still probably at least 5,000 years between like it's a lot of time to cover for a single movie so i think that this is going to focus on one arc of the story of the Jedi the creation of the Jedi Uh, he said in his video talking about uh, kyber crystals and how the force was kind of discovered and how the like um I don't think he said indigenous peoples of, but he, but it was something like that how the original people of you know space and that universe like handled the force and how all that went so it sounds like they might be doing something really almost ceremonial and the way that they're going to be portraying um, <laughs> the cat, portraying the Jedi in this one. You have anything to add for that? No. Just yeah. excited for it in general. Yeah. I just want to see a caveman okay. with a lightsaber. <laughs> so then we have, uh, oh, we are going to see a Wookiee with a lightsaber in the, uh, is it the Acolyte? It's that kid show. The kid one, okay. Um so Charmaine Obaid Shinoy, sorry, I definitely butchered that. She is an Academy Award winning and Emmy Award winning director who has worked on Ms. Marvel, Saving Face, and more. So already pretty good with that. 
Um, she is doing one that is, quote, set after the events of Rise of Skywalker that will feature Daisy Ridley back as Rey as she builds the new Jedi Order. One movie about Rey, folks. Okay. All you angry bros on the internet can stop being pissy about that. One movie. <laughs> um, I am also excited for this one. Obviously, we all know the horrible, horrible things that Daisy Ridley was put through as... Uh, a human being on the internet, especially, um, pretty bad. And I think she's come a long way in personal growth, and that's good. So I think she is in a place where she's ready to go back into the character of Rey, which was not something, I mean, widely accepted, yes. I think even the pe half the people who say that they liked the, you know, the story arc or whatever will still come back and be like, well, she was a Mary Sue. And I think that's terrible. Just let it be a thing. Just let her, just let her live is kind of what I want to say there. Um, so that's going to be her working on new stuff. Will we see Grogu in this? Din Grogu? I don't know. Any thoughts? Um, I like the, that they're just kind of they're they're giving them a chance to like all right any gripes or issues whatever they may have had they're getting a chance to fix it but also i definitely feel like they had to back up that brinks truck to her house because the experience she her john boyega and oscar isaac had from a lot of the fandom was extremely i mean she, she kelly Moreau's tran too like kelly marie tran yeah, yeah. Kelly well, marie, she got to be a disney princess after it, well so. yeah but but i'll never forget like uh because it was around the time when i thought you know following social media yeah uh, celebrities on social media was cool i remember she said so she said something about gun control and people were sending her dad i remember just like going on the post i was like oh i kind of agree with this because she's from england you know they had one shooting there and then Gun, gun control is active. She just made one comment about that, and people sending her actual death threats and literally caused her to delete her Instagram, and then just, you know, the constant thing after that. So it's good that they're, like, giving her this full thing. Mm -hmm. Like, here's your chance to basically tell them to go fuck it. Yeah, yes, <laughs> that's a good way to say it. Yeah. The last couple of things that were updates, um, very surprisingly, a couple of things, actually. I'd say three surprising things and one maybe. Um, the three surprising things. So first off... The Donald Glover Lando movie is still happening, which is, I thought, sh sorry, series. It's a series. That's pretty shocking. Um, I believe it was Kathleen Kennedy who said that she can, she says, I can just tell you it's still happening and he's very excited about it. He can only be Donald Glover, right? Uh, the Taika Waititi Star Wars movie is also happening, has not been scrapped. Equally shocking, possibly more shocking, honestly, because... I, could, I was convinced that was done. Uh, so that's good. I think she said something about how he's like still working on it really hard or something like that. How he likes to do it himself. That sounds fine with me. Fine by me. And then Rogue Squadron, which was the Patty Jenkins movie, is potentially still could happen. She said, Kathleen Kennedy said, Rogue Squadron, that is definitely something that we can still talk about. Whether it's a movie or whether it ends up being in the series space, that's definitely something. And then the thing that's less likely, obviously, being Ewan McGregor talking about uh, Obi-Wan season two, but Lucasfilm is not actively ready for that yet. So I feel like if they're ever going to do that, it'll be maybe five years down the line. Um. Yeah, the, the Lando, Donald Glover, and Taika Waititi projects, I think it's both probably from them, because both of them are really busy. Because mm -hmm. as Donald Glover just finished doing Atlanta... Um, I know he's doing... Isn't he coming back for the Community movie as well? well that has yet to be confirmed. Oh, okay. Um, I know he's like been working on a bunch of music stuff. Um, Taika Waititi, I've always had my fan theory that I would love for it just to be 
about um, Yoda's, oh, yeah. Yoda's time on Dagobah, just yeah. having, just tripping out on ketamine, having Force visions. Because if then if he's there, you know, you guys remember in Empire Strikes Back when Luke had the whole vision of fighting, you know, Vader and cutting off the head and seeing it as himself because his worst fear was becoming just like his father. Mm-hmm. So that, that just opens up the door because Yoda could literally see anything on that planet at that point in time through via Force visions. Mm-hmm. And I think Taika Waititi have so much fun of that. And then just like just like I yeah I think you had it right because I think I've heard the same murmur too that he wants it to be his own thing he doesn't want any mm-hmm. outside interference which I think that's great let him have fun with that um, yeah the the works artist stuff that's that's kind of surprising I I low key kind of feel like some of that was a bit of reactionary stuff from the not great reception of Wonder Woman eighty four from oh, yeah. them oh yeah um, but Patty Jenkins is still an Academy Award winning uh, director so I feel like you shouldn't waste that opportunity in my opinion. Definitely. So that brings us to uh, the announcements and the trailers. So for a couple of the announcements, real quick, uh, live action Lilo and Stitch was apparently a thing that's been in process of happening. Shocking to me. I'm very shocked that they would even touch that with a stick that's Mm -hmm. live action. Um, They already cast, the Lilo they cast is 18. The Nani is, uh, I don't know how old, but she looks very young. Odd. Okay, fine, whatever. Um, apparently there was some hubbub about the Hawaiian Filipino actress who they cast as Nani is um, too light-skinned for people, and so she was getting some hate, which it's never how you handle that. Um, <laughs> she can't help it. Um, that's not something you talk to actors about, that's something you talk to studios about if you have an issue with it. Um, and I just, I just, I can't imagine this being anything less than absolutely horrifying to see live action. I don't know. It's, what, it's my favorite. It's probably my all-time favorite Disney movie, and I just can't imagine that being any good. Also, it's going straight to Disney+, Plus, so, I mean, it's basically today's straight-to-video at this point, right? Uh, the Superman, the, what is it, what do they call it? Superman Legends? Superman Maybe. Legacy. Legacy. Uh, uh, yeah, I think, I was it, like... No, because I was just thinking of Man of Tomorrow is what it was originally oh, okay, going to be yeah. before all that change. Um, the script is apparently done, and it was confirmed for whatever reason, because people wanted to know, that Jimmy Olsen is going to be appearing in it. Good for them. It's it's because Snyder put a bullet in Jimmy Olsen's head last time. Oh, yeah! <laughs> that was funny. I didn't know that was him uh, until like the second time I watched that, and no, somebody had to tell me. No, it's because he wasn't... They just showed his body dropping, but in the extended cut, they showed that it was actually oh, confirmed okay. to be Jimmy Olsen, That's probably which, is, why which is hilarious. I love that, you know... You like to... Rintra in Multiverse of Madness. Yes, yeah. Big, big fandom in the, from the comics. Um, didn't even say his name. Up. He had one line. They, he didn't even say... They didn't say his name at all in the movie. Yeah. Real stupid. And they gave him an action figure. Are you shitting me? <laughs> anyway... Um, Stargate is getting a reboot from MGM. I remember the movie. I don't think I... I know I watched Stargate Atlantis, and I watched the Stargate movie a ton growing up, but I don't think I ever really saw much of the series. Uh, But interesting concept that they'll be getting a reboot. If they do that, I will... I mean, as long as it's good, who cares? Um, And then I hope they put the original actors in it, because... I mean, Picard season three was literally just the next generation reunion and it's the best season that that show's had yet. So (laughs) put the original actors in it, Um, not necessarily in their original roles. You don't have to do that, but just like, you know, give them a cameo, guys. 
And then there's also um, HBO Max is back to being Max, apparently, is the first thing. Uh, and they're making a Harry Potter TV series, which I don't think anybody thinks is a good idea. Um, <laughs> so many reasons. So many reasons. Yeah, and the fans who grew up with that, who are the crazy, like, who in your in your first take, you'd be like, oh, no, the Harry Potter fans are crazy. They'd support the hell out of that. No, those fans have grown up with those actors as Harry Potter characters. They're not going to take to a remake, guys. Like, I, I don't like that's not they are no longer your like they're not going to give money to something that's not their original Harry Potter. That's that's what they like, folks. Like, I don't know where you... And then, of course, there's all this other BS that we don't need to go into because J.K. Rowling is off her rocker. Um, but yeah, that they're not... I don't, I don't know. I, I would be genuinely shocked if that makes it to video in any way. Um, and then the one rumor that we have before we get into Jonathan Major is briefly... No, let's talk to Arthur Majors first because it's less fun. Um, do you think he's going to get kicked from Marvel? They would have done it by now if they were going to do it. Okay. I don't think he's going to because I think that they are giving him his Ezra Miller pass. Um, I think that they are aware that Ezra Miller had that pass and that everybody is aware that Ezra Miller got that pass for whatever damn reason. Because um, the movie actually looks kind of good. I, well, <laughs> And so they are going to kind of do the same thing with Jonathan Majors. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, on, it's on. It was honestly a cost thing for them. They've 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 made this movie about him, set him up as the next Thanos, basing all yeah, these movies off him. It's happened it's, before. Yeah, but not to this level. Mm. It, yeah, fucking Rhodey and um, Bruce Banner are completely different than the guy you're going to base your next entire like villain event off of. Yeah, but people are also extremely racist. And how many of the Marvel fans do you think would say, oh, it, just, it doesn't even matter, they're both black guys? Or do you think they just don't want to give that to the fans to think? I mean, I, 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 I don't even know where that came from. Maybe. The fact that that's what they said when Rhodey got recast. No, because no, because I remember those jokes were hilarious because they were like Rhodey got a tan or stuff like that because it was clearly Terrence Howard light skin, and then you get Don Cheadle coming in. Yeah, and it's they, like... they don't even have the same face shape. <laughs> they don't even have the same face it, shape. It would be like he'd have to have lost so much weight to get the face shape to get his cheeks and, that hollow. Oh my god! And that in demeanor, sickly, and like the whole. Day, I remember thinking that was hilarious. Um, the Ed Norton one that was more of I. I heard a lot of the stuff. He that was, was just difficult. him as a person. He right? was difficult yeah. to work with, and he was like one of those weird method actors. He gets really. Oh god! Yeah. Which I don't know how you. You can get in method acting oh and being God. a giant green dude. I would have loved to have seen that. Just him like stomping around set as like five foot six dude. Like, Do you think you'd ever? Is he really five six? Yeah, he's like five six. Oh, yeah. I love that. Uh, I love that for him. Um, do you think they would ever invite who that dude, Edward Norton? Ed Norton. I immediately forgot his name. Uh, do you think they'd ever invite him to cameo in something? If they brought him back, they would have to bring back Terrence Howard too. Okay, so with Liv Tyler coming back, do you think that's a possibility? No, that would confuse no, people too that, that, that would confuse people. I, I feel like if they're going to do, like, the, the, guarantee I will bet any amount of money we're going to see anybody who's ever played a Marvel hero ever in, in the Kang Dynasty War or whatever. Like, that that's going to be their MCU Secret Wars. I'd be fine with that as long as they don't, like... It's just going to be the whole thing of, like, pe people I mean, there's getting... A, there's a way to overdo it, but... Yeah, well, no, it'll. I think it'll be a lot along the lines of they hit it in Doctor Strange. They're going to show you these people just to kill them. Like, here's your, here's your nod, tip the hat, we're going to kill them. So speaking of Secret Wars, 
Secret Wars. Yeah, Secret Wars. Yeah, Secret Wars. <laughs> I was going to say Secret Invasion. Wrong, wrong project. Um, it has been rumored that Reed Richards has been cast as Adam Driver, which we talked about, and both of us had the same reaction of, how the hell did we not see that already? Yes. <laughs> that just makes so much sense. And I think everybody else, besides the people who, for some reason, think that Adam Driver is of a comparable level to, like, um, a Hollywood person, like, I'm trying to think of somebody like Chris Pratt. He's, he's not on that same level at all. Well, I, I just think it's weird how people, they were upset about it. They wanted Reed Richards to be a heartthrob. He's not meant to be a heartthrob. He's meant to be an older dude scientist who married a woman about half his age. And then another thing I just thought of it now as I'm saying this, if they do decide to do a maker storyline of an evil Reed Richards, what better person mm-hmm. to play that than Adam Driver, in my opinion? I just like to clarify the whole not on that level thing is more of like household name is what I'm going for. Because the complaints that I saw were, oh, at this level, we're going to have, this is going to be our Fantastic Four. And it was like all of these cliche Hollywood like big names right now. And then Adam Driver, who I would not call that. He is definitely better on an acting level than a lot of those other names because I think he's, has he's he got won an range. Oscar? Has he, he's definitely, oh my gosh, the range. Like, have he's you even seen his discussion? or the watch if you don't believe like, I'll, I'll give you two movies if you've only seen him in star wars go watch him oh, and logan God. lucky yes and black klansman oh my that gosh is two examples of prime range for this guy it's what was it that great. i just watched with him 65 if you want, 65 yeah. terrible movie he carried that entire thing on his back the dude does not phone anything in. He does not, yeah. He which is, is funny because of the scene in Black Klansman where he's on the phone. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> and, and it's also like, and I think a lot of that comes from because he is like one of those like hardcore like Marines dudes. So yeah, oh gosh, yeah. So he doesn't half-ass anything. He and, has yeah. to like go in. <laughs> and he's like a genuinely good dude. If you've he ever is. read an interview with him or seen any of the news about him volunteering for the various veterans fundraisers and things, he, he does a, a lot of that. He just talks at uh, camps where, where people are being, you know, doing yeah. Training and shit. Yeah, there's a thing wherever uh, John Stewart was on Capitol Hill and Adam Driver showed up there to support him. It was whenever they were doing the passing the uh, the burn the the burn pits for a lot of the veterans. Him, yeah. He was out there, John Stewart. So he's yeah, he's a genuine good dude. Yeah. So yeah, Reed Richards and I was saying I could totally see a like classy female actress like um, Carrie Washington as his Sue Storm, who's like, because they always, because, oh God, the thing, I, I I really don't want them to do the thing where if this is Adam Driver, they're going to give us like um, a Leo DiCaprio situation, which is what it is in the comics really between Reed and Sue, where they're going to give him a 20-year-old wife as is the actress who plays Sue Storm. Um, no, thank you. I would very much like to see Adam Driver, if he is going to be playing Reed Richards, him be married to a much more mature Sue Storm. And I just feel like somebody like Carrie Washington, who's kind of that classier kind of actress, could definitely do that. There's a couple of trailers that we're going to talk about as well. Uh, Spider-Verse, The Marvels, Godzilla Kong, which has an additional name I haven't even looked up. Uh, Briefly, The Penguin and American Born Chinese. So Spider-Verse trailer. Obviously, you're the Spider-Man person in the house, so I will let you talk about that one more. I'm excited for it because I just like this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, in continuing the trend of these these Spider-Verse movies being the best movie adaptations of spider-man um it's great once again it's it's a more fantastic dialogue from his mom just giving you the overarching idea of what it means to be spider-man and how like you know it's doesn't matter who you are behind that mask and about putting other people above yourself um but also um i saw this tweet and i thought it was fantastic described this this trailer so well 
I love it when Hollywood gives Marvel editorial the big middle finger. Mm-hmm. Um, straight up, you see May Parker, you see Mayday Parker, like literally, Peter gets to have a kid with MJ and be happy together. And you get to see classic Ben Riley Scarlet Spider-Man, not all these weird adaptations of him being Jackal or it was a chasm, whatever that's catch chasm, <laughs> whatever that name is, whatever yeah. weird stuff they do with him. Just getting what you want. Pete's brother, Pete's blonde haired brother who just wants to do what he does, but in a different area. There you go. That's literally all it is. Pete just wants to have a kid because just in that point right there, it's so much of an easy setup. Peter and MJ go off, have the kid raise the kid together. You have Ben Riley come in and be Spider-Man. There you go. The problem solved of 20 years of editorial issues. Amazing. I know. Um, but yeah, the art style um, and the fact that we're seeing so many Spider-Men. Um, and then they even they even directly reference um, the base issue of this movie of why they have some of these Spider-Mans converging together is from Tom Holland's Spider-Man and Benedict Cumberbatch, Doctor Strange from messing things up. Mm-hmm. So it's really fun to see all that plays in together. And it's really nice to see that Sony and Marvel seem to finally kind of be like, OK, yeah, we can we can play together. We, we can we can tie things up and make it work. Is it Chris Anka, the one who did a lot of the design for that? I think it was like 80% of the, the Spider-Verse mm-hmm. designs from the comic and the movie that, was from him. That dude, my man Amazing. Chris Anka, um, if I could just, for a second, great, great artist. You can look up his official, it's with a K-R-I-S, Anka, A-N-K-A. Mm-hmm. Fantastic anything. Brilliant. Does. But you know what I really appreciate about him is that he has an entirely separate horny account on Twitter. <laughs> um Dude's not going to try and pretend that's... And I'm pretty sure he's either bisexual or totally gay. I'm not sure. He's definitely one or the other or something in that queer loop. But very, very cool dude. Um, And not just because he has the the horny art account. He has really, really good art. If you just look at any of the stuff he's done for Spider-Verse. And none of it's, like, in your face. He just, like, will post the thing. It'll be like... Just some kind of Spider-Verse coming out whenever. And it's, it's like, you, you just know from knowing his art style and from being aware of, like, Twitter and stuff that he's doing all of this for this project. And he's not, like, trying to blow it up and say all this stuff. No, he's just saying, yeah, I had a ton of fun doing this. Here's another picture. Here's the BTS. Yeah. Behind the scenes, you nerds. And anyway, anything else for Spider-Verse? No, just it looks amazing. Yeah. So the Marvels is the other one we'll talk about a little bit more. Obviously, this is the second Captain Marvel movie, and we have got three Marvels in here. Uh, We have Kamala Khan, Carol Danvers, and Monica Rambeau. This is going to be spinning out of not just the Captain Marvel movie, not just Secret Invasion, I think a little bit, but also WandaVision, because isn't that the last place that we saw? Yeah. Yeah, that was the last place that we saw Monica and Ms. Marvel, because that's obviously her previous project. Um, so this is a really cool culmination of things. And um, the trailer um, really kind of holds up to the hype that it's already been getting. Obviously, the first one had a lot of naysayers. and I will never say that I wish it hadn't been made or that I would have rather not had one because just they needed to just give us the goddamn... Carol Danvers movie for fuck's sake already and they finally did it and now we can move on and get stuff that's not just a desperate grasp at just putting something out so that we have it you know that's kind of what that first one was but now we've got this we have some really solid backup material trailer makes it look awesome uh what was our theory that we had was pretty much that there's uh The second secret, well, okay, no, because it kind of spins, if we're doing that, that would kind of spin it out of Secret Invasion, where we think Secret Invasion is not really the 
the scrolls that is the villains it's the pink skin Cree because the whole reason they're called pink skin Cree is because it's either they're basically look like white Caucasian humans or they look blue. So <laughs> uh, they call them pink skin Cree. So how easy would it be to invade earth with human looking, you know, skin tones? That's kind of right. What we were kind of thinking. Yeah. No, no, yeah. It's basically my, my theory is that like a lot of it will stem from the, the loose cold war that's going on in between the Korean scrolls that's happening on earth. So then you can see in the Marvels trailer, the Kree are not happy with Earth. Like, it's pretty clear um, that they are anti-Earth in anything that you see in that trailer. But there's, um, regardless, it looks awesome, blah, blah, blah. I have a question for the audience. If anybody has been keeping up with things for the Carol Danver comics, Danvers comics, um, do you think one of the figures, any of the figures in the... Um, in the trailer or in the movie, let's say, will be her sister L'Oreal. Because if you notice in the trailer, there is a scene where Carol is holding the staff of the accusers, the hammer, you know? Obviously, there was Ronan the Accuser. We knew all about him from previous stuff. Um, Kree Accusers, that's their that's their tool. In the comics, during the Empire event, Carol briefly became the Kree, Kree accuser, um, and that was her weapon. Then it was passed on to the appropriate, actual, the true, like, uh, new owner of the staff, the, the hammer, her half-sister, who is fully Kree, uh, L'Oreal. So, do you think we're going to see L'Oreal as an accuser in this? Or do you think Carol's going to meet a half-sister? Damn it, I want that! Sorry. There has been very few things in modern Carol Danvers comics that stuck with the character. I can only think of two, and it's, I mean, maybe three. Her alcoholism, her sister, and her Cree heritage, which they don't even bring up anymore. Please give me the sister. That's the best one out of those. We already know there's probably something funky with her heritage because stuff and powers and magic and history. Cool. I just would love that. That's that's what I gotta say about the Marvels trailer. Did you have anything to add? No, just the the, the cool bit at the end where it looks like they they figured out how to oh, to use the transferring teleport. yeah, yeah the, transferring the, powers and stuff yeah because yeah. it seems like whenever one of them uses the power it switches with the other so it seems like at the end of the movie there's like a cool montage of them figuring it out and yeah figuring out how somewhere. to how to utilize this once was a hindrance for their powers being connected yes. yeah. yeah which is really what like in comic books themselves that's something that's always really satisfying thank you Jonathan Hickman for being so fantastic at that. In your Avengers and X-Men runs, getting, and Vida Yal is great at that too, actually, getting a team together and having, God, Vida Yal's New new Mutants run was like half entirely about that, um, getting a team together and using all of their powers in coordination. Synergy. Synergy, yes, that was the term that Vida Yala used so much in their, in their New Mutants was the synergy. I love that, and that's what it looks like we're going to be getting by the end of the Marvels, so that'll be really cool. Other things, uh, have not watched the Godzilla Kong teaser yet. I don't think I need to, let's be honest, because we know what we want from this movie. It's big fucking monsters. Big ape giant lizard go brrr. That's it. That's what I want. 
I don't care about the human. I pff, doesn't matter. Give me the fight. Give me big monster I, fight. I, I, well, I, I do at least want to see. I do at least like to see one epic human death. You know, like somebody just like getting crushed or like just, you know, so they throw a building and there's some dude sitting in his living room and he's still inside the building. You know, something funny on the like toilet. That. Yeah, yeah, th- those kind of things. That's about as far yeah. as my my personal interaction goes. Yeah, the rest of it just this the, yeah. just let me watch the monsters do stuff. Yeah. Uh, we had a teaser, I think it was, for the penguin, actually. Yes, yeah. uh, I'm I, I'm sorry, I don't care that much. This is totally up your alley, obviously. Yeah, it's... it's you, is that you, Matt Reeves working on it? Yes, it is okay. Matt Reeves, and it looks like there's... He's heavily going to be inspired by a lot of No Man's Land Batman story, um, which is great as well. I highly recommend that. It's from the 80s? No, no, 90s. Early 90s. Um, That was also the first appearance of um Cassandra Kane Batgirl, so... Nice. A whole, I, I don't think we'll get that, but, you know, it's cool to see that he's taking like Basically, what that ends up happening is Gotham gets flooded, of course, like the end of the last movie. And then, basically, the U.S. government just walls Gotham off. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we're hands off. We're not going to mess with you guys until you get figured out. So, martial law gets enacted. And then you end up seeing, you know, people like Penguin taking over Gotham and making it a full kingpin mm-hmm. city. And then, yeah, that's like how we saw a little bit of that in Batman, right? Or whatever one it was. Dark Knight Rises? Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and so then, and, and it's really, and then, so then it's really cool to see, you know, where this will put um, Batson when you see him mm. in his second movie. Good point. Yes. Maybe it will be worth watching then. Yeah. And then, of course, we have to pump up American Born Chinese again because uh, they did release another trailer about that. And as we know, hang on, let me look up the release date. I want to say 24th. Yeah, 24th. I think it was what it was, too. May 21st, I want to say. May 24th. Okay. Okay. Um, But yeah, definitely check out the new trailer for that. Um, If you haven't checked out what uh, James Jean has done for that one, that was a really, really cool print that he did with a nice statement behind it. I know I already read it on the the podcast previously, Um, but I would just really like the show to do very well. Uh, So please, please watch it. So then uh, we'll go through this pretty quickly. I have more information on my podcast notes if that's something that you really want to see, but this is going to be the anime news, and then we'll jump into the the end of Mando. Um, But VRV was a streaming service that merged back with Crunchyroll. Um, It was actually a Crunchyroll subscription service that um, was just separate for a while, and because of the big Sony versus AT&T versus Funimation and all the different transfers and buying and selling of stuff... VRV is back on Crunchyroll now. The end. Um, So if you were sad to see VRV go, it's not gone. It's just Crunchyroll again. As for new anime announcements, the quintessential quintuplets is getting a new anime of previously unadapted stories. It's a very popular one. It was it was cute. I'll give it that. There's another one that I think is funny coming in the fall called (laughs) I'm giving the disgraced noble lady I rescued a crash course in naughtiness. We'll have to see how that one goes. (laughs) Um, And then Rising of the Shield Hero anime season three is coming in in October. Spy Classroom is getting a second season in July to be on High Dive, not on Crunchyroll. And then Sweet Reincarnation and a fifth season of Bungo Stray Dogs will be happening on Crunchyroll in July. All right, so I don't really know where to start with Mandalorian because it's really three episodes. We'll start by going just a very brief once over of the episodes, right? So chapter two, tw- chapter 22, Guns for Hire. That one's the one that guest starred Lizzo and Jack Black, who, God damn it, posted that he was in the episode at 6 freaking 30 in the morning. 
the day of the episode. And so, of course, it spoiled it for me. Thank you very much, sir. He also said what he was playing, which was like, come on, dude, really? Um, but anyway, so they were fine. Obviously, you know, it was very much uh, Bryce Dallas Howard wanted to have them in it, so they were in it. You could have easily chosen better actors. Yes, we know that. It was very much a just funny moment of people who wanted to be in Star Wars. I'm not going to hate on it because, I mean, this is Star Wars, guys. <laughs> This was always kind of lame. So when Grogu does his little jumps and, and you know, she knights him and stuff, yeah, this is right up the Star Wars alley. This is exactly what we have always liked in Star Wars. What else? Like, why are you hating on it? Um, but then, of course, the more important part of that episode was the fact that Bo-Katan reunites with, uh, what was it, Axe Woves yeah, and so the other yeah. side of the Mandalorians who she had been leading until she lost the Darksaber. She meets up with him. They're like, oh, you don't have the Darksaber. And Mando goes, well, here, I hand it to her. Now she has it. And she's uh, not only that. Because, you know, they're supposed to fight for it, not just give it to her. She beat somebody who beat Mando. So by some kind of mathematical proof fit forum, she is now the owner of the Darksaber. Anyway, she wields it way better than him anyway. So they all join up with her. There you have it. Momentous stuff. We forgot, I forgot to talk about on the last coverage of Mando, the moment that the armorer had with Bo-Katan, where she basically tells Bo-Katan... No, no, girl, show me that face. It's okay to take off your helmet mm. because I think that you are going to be the one to reunite all of Mandalore because you can walk between the two sides of the extremists and the non-extremists, you know. Um, so that reveal is made and she announces, the armor announces that to all of the Mandalorians, that Bogotan's going to lead them. And that's what brought us into chapter 22 of her reuniting the d previously Death Watch, the Armorers Mandalorians, and the Axe Woves Mandalorians. So that was chapter 22. Chapter 23 is the Spies. This is where we really get into the series. Um, the anarchists, I guess, of the season. Um, it's basically revealed in this one that Moff Gideon has made kind of Mandalorian armor suits for his new generation of soldiers. Uh, who I believe are also clones. Not of him, that comes later. <laughs> uh, but but more fun. A lot of Mandalorians die. Not that. More fun is Grogu gets an IG-12 suit, which is uh, IG-11 with the like guts taken out, and so he can ride in it on its little chest and drive it like, you know, a uh, like a video game. <laughs> And so he walks around with it and he can say yes and no and use its weapons and stuff. So really great. I thought that was hilarious and really funny. Um, he can't speak yet still as of the finale. He still doesn't quite speak, but he uh, he can ride his IG-11, his IG-12 suit <laughs> and keep up with the best of them. Okay, so yeah, Moff Gideon, uh, they, they end up... Oh, no, that was that was before that. Okay, so all of Mandalore gets reunited, right? Because they're going to go take back Mandalore. So Bo-Katan and Axe Wolves' Mandalorians arrive on Mandalore, and they are attacked by stormtroopers and stuff from Moff Gideon's people who are there. But then they're saved by other Mandalorians. So now you have the three surviving that we know of sects of Mandalore all reunited and together fighting for one purpose, getting Moff Gideon off their planet. So that's what happens basically in chapter 24, is you get the big battle. 
um, um, Moff Gideon went full uh, Mall Ninja. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's revealed he's got all he's got all these clones of himself, and you guessed it right away that mm-hmm. those clones had were force sensitive, and so then he comes out and you're like, dude, why is this guy? He's got like every possible utility belt on his like, he's got always full on Beskar armor with the Death Trooper he, helmet. Yeah, he's got the Death Trooper like little spikes on his helmet and stuff like the dude the dude went full mall ninja he had every tool possible and then of course he reveals that it's because he's jealous that he never had force powers hilarious that was probably the most realistic thing yeah go ahead and then i also feel like because i feel like he was 100 percent doing this without palpatine's knowledge I think that this is his like shadow I, op to do. I think if he had Palpatine's backup on this, he would have had a lot more success with exactly. killing and, them. Yeah, and then I don't <laughs> think another reason is is Palpatine wouldn't approve anybody else besides Palpatine making clones. Probably, yeah. Yeah, so um And, and then uh, and there was a cool thing that Bokaton said earlier that it wasn't anybody else who destroyed Mandalorians, it was their own infighting. And so what better way to get all these sects to come together than to like Unify to fucking hate the same guy, Moff Gideon. <laughs> they all hate Moff Gideon because he was the one who stole Mandalore from them. So it was just so perfect of how all that worked out together. It's like, oh yeah, instead of us fighting, why don't we just go jump this one dude and his friends? So then in the end, Axe Wolves is able to they they all flee their ship, their big old empire ship they stole, right? And Axe Wolf is going down because they've been in this battle. It's already going down. So he aims it so that'll go down right, literally right on top of Moff Gideon. No joke. <laughs> it goes it goes through it like and so, unfortunately, of course, you have Mando and Grogu and Bo-Katan who are in there fighting Moff Gideon still in a desperate attempt, and he's just being mall ninja as heck. Um, and so the thing crashes and you're like, oh shit, and Bo-Katan, of course, being the mom, tries to block Grogu from the flames with her tiny little shield. <laughs> but then you're like, oh shit, how are they going to survive this? And then you see Grogu forced away, what, what would you call that? Force bubbled them safety from the explosive destruction of everything else. And there is no way Moff Gideon survived that. There is probably not even liquid, um... Beskar, Beskar left. left. Yeah. It probably completely burnt that all to shit too. So no Moff Gideon, no clones. The clones were killed all already anyway. He got so mad about that. That was, I mean, it was kind of funny. I'm not gonna lie. Dude put all his hopes into a bunch of different versions of himself, but magical. Yeah, and it was kind of funny. Of I think there were a lot of reason why he did that is that, and then they think he even referenced it before is that I think he was jealous that Thrawn was picked to be the heir to the Empire and not him. <laughs> so I think that was his plan. Oh, I'm going to go over and show Daddy Palp that I have Force powers now <laughs> and he'll accept me. Um, and then uh, to keep the Destiny references going, Grogu popped his little Ward of Dawn bubble. Save <laughs> um, and then another funny thing is, is uh, throughout all of that, even before uh, before that, when he was fighting um, the Emperor, some of the Emperor's Red Guard. You can definitely tell that Grogu has had so much more force training mm-hmm. with Luke. Like, his jumps were on mm-hmm. point. He wasn't getting tired. He was pulling shit from people's hands. Yeah. It was awesome to see that Seeing him, more like, adept. tripping people and stuff was hilarious. Yeah, seeing him more adept with the force was great. And then, of course, in the end, once everybody's all happy, they, uh, not only do they relight the forge, which was an awesome yes. scene, because you have three different sects of completely different Mandalorians who are here. The survivors of their history, their culminative culmination of history and Axe Woves, who was one of the extremists on some end or another and somebody's perspective I'm sure standing in the front and as you have Bogotan is given the lighter by the armor lights the thing and he yells for Mandalore and the whole crowd goes for Mandalore 
Shut up. I know it's cheesy, okay? This is why we like Star Wars. <laughs> we all saw the first scene, the first time that Princess Leia ever gave the the medallions. That was the first time we saw this cheese ball, okay? Mm-hmm. Just let us have it. <laughs> um, and it, and them, them lighting the forge of them all being there was, I don't know, just to me it was very reminiscent of... um. In the, in the Olympics, when they light the open oh, yes. torches of like, oh, yes. everybody, a new era. yes, everybody everywhere coming together for the betterment of good, for games and fun, for the betterment of mm-hmm. our people to light this one common flame. Yes. I thought that was really cool. That, that's what it made me think of too. And we also got um, Grogu, well, the the first off, the heavy Mando, whatever his name is. Oh, Paz Vizsla. Yeah, Paz Vizsla's son gets, yes. gets like knighted into He's being now the, the, head the head of the family. family. Yeah. And then you get uh, Din Djarin, who, when we learn a little bit about Mandalorian names here as well. Um, he brings Grogu up and is like, I would like to adopt this foundling, basically is what ends up happening. And so he gets his little, like, he gets to stand in the water and gets his little blessing, and the name that they give him is Dan Grogu. So with that knowledge, we know that the names are kind of like how they are in like Japan. Japan. They're kind of flipped. So he's not, when we're calling him Din, we're calling him by his last name. (laughs) His name is Jaren. (laughs) So Din Grogu, and that was really cool. And then, of course, Grogu Mm. in the water has his little moment of being a force-sensitive little creature and connecting very clearly with the mythosaur deep, deep down in the caverns below in the in the waters of Mandalore, um, which is, is down there, and you see it opens its eyes and kind of, like, shift a little bit as it senses him back. Really, really cool, and very much full circle from where we were at the beginning of the season when that thing was very suddenly discovered. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and it was also really cool to see the the arc of the Visla family. Um, mm, so yeah. Free Visla yeah. was the one who started the Death Watch. It had and was took a hand in getting Satine killed and just basically fracturing the Empire. His son Paz Visla had to live with the mistakes of his father of living in secret, hiding in whatever's left, and then now the third generation of the son. He can actually see now all the sectors of the Mandalorians back together. Must be for whatever planet Din Djarin was from. Must have been the one that has the name flips then. Probably, yeah. Yeah, and they just respect that from wherever he came from. Anything else to add about this? I... I... I love it. Oh, and then and then the way it ends of the classic fucking Mando gets his own piece of land. Oh, he goes gosh. back to Grief Karga. Grief Karga gives him the key to his own piece of land. You literally yep. see like him sitting there with his classic. feet propped up, Grogu playing with his frogs, and then it just does the classic Western zoom in on Grogu. Honestly, if they never made another season of Mando, I would be yep. fine because that's that such been a perfect, perfect ending. It's yeah. such a perfect ending. You know, I I hope if they do do another season, it's just more of like you know. Going back to more of what season one was, Lone Wolf and Cub kind of thing, mm-hmm. just go out, do a quest, come back. If you are going to make it, if we don't see any more of them two, I'm fine because that is, it's just such a great ending for it there. I hate to say it, but season, uh, whatever, season four will break us because uh, Din Djarin will probably end up dying. I still, yeah, that's that's and, still my, my, Because yeah. remember what's coming after season four, that Filoni movie, it's going to tie it into the sequels. Yep. So that'll be whatever, you know, if Grogu will be in that Ray movie, that Filoni one will be the one that'll show us the end of the end of I season will, four. I will only be satisfied if um if a uh, fucking Din gets killed by Palpatine and Ben Swallow. What do you think his voice will sound like? Who? Grogu. When they eventually because he's gotta say something at some point. I think you get somebody with like is somebody who's like actually 50 with kind of a raspy voice but could still sound kind of young. 
Because because Yoda had that very like raspy voice, so you got to get someone with like a raspy voice, but a little bit younger. Do you think he'll talk like that? Probably not. I think he might because I think that's that's a lot of why Yoda's people age so differently is because mm-hmm. they might, you know, they hear what we're saying in normal, but it can only come out that mm-hmm. way. I don't know, some like, sort of like way. the like the Ents from. Um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny, like, Grogu's people and Yoda's people and Yaddle, we have still no idea yep. what their people are called, what their planets are from, so I hope we get a lot of... Because it would be cool if that's what a lot of the James Mangold movie is, because there's always been a thing that's canon that they are the oldest living species in the entire Star Wars world, makes so... Makes sense. Like, I mean, the, shit, the, the High Republic comics literally have young Yoda in them. He was, like, <laughs> he was, like was he 1,500 years old by the time he died in episode 5, I think? He was ancient. Yeah. He was literally ancient, yeah. Yeah, so, you know... All right. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Yay! We're finally getting this out to you guys. Sorry it took so long. Thank you for listening to whatever portion of the podcast you decide to listen to. And make sure you check the description for all of our socials. And I'll try to put as many links to jump around the episode easier since this one is almost three hours long. Uh, Next episode is going to be the last of the month. Um the last episode of April. So we'll either, we'll talk free comic book day. Um, I'll have to see what kind of show, cause Manda's over now. So I'll have to see get something else. Bad Batch. We can catch up on Bad Batch. Uh, and then mm-hmm. we'll have probably a bunch more news and stuff. I'm hoping fingers crossed that we get some more fun news and stuff. Uh, a couple more comics to catch up on and a uh, new manga of the week, a new tarot card of the week. Um, and some more fun stuff. So we'll see you next time.